Recently, I've received a few letters from fans of Quantum Leap demanding I move Quantum Leap back to its original Wednesday night time slot. Okay, you win! Quantum Leap leaps back home to Wednesday on NBC. I gave you what you want! Now please, stop writing! Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator. himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 42, Eight and a Half Months. From the paperwork Dottie filled out at the hospital, I knew my name was Billie Jean Crockett, and I was 16 years old, and the Dottie, Dorothy Louise Billings, was not my mother. She had signed friend, and from everything I could tell, Billie Jean could use every friend she could get. I mean, there's no way that this baby is going to be coming... Right now, trust me on that. You can't fix it! It's purple, for heaven's sake! It's gonna be very big in the 80s. Well, I don't know where ADs is, but here in Oklahoma, we don't like looking like an electrified cotton candy. I can't have a baby. I know that. But Ziggy's not so sure. I'm sure. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. There's no way that I could possibly okay, have a baby. Okay, okay, I, I okay, okay, calm down. Al, what if she has her baby in the future? Well, Ziggy's very worried about that. He says there's an 86% chance that when you leap out and Billie Jean leaps back, the baby could stay in the future. She loses her baby? In the original history, Billie Jean put her baby up for adoption. Then she regretted it, and she spent the rest of her life trying to find her. So I'm here to change that. It's not your baby. It's my baby. Mrs. Thaler, I believe in adoption. I I really do. Good. I know what I want to do. I want to keep my baby. I'm having hot flashes. You're not having hot flashes. Yeah, right, and I'm not having cravings, but I'm sitting here eating Jello and onions. Al, <laughs> read my lips. Now I'm pregnant. Oh, damn it, Billy. You're the one who told me to go to college. You tell me to make something out of myself. Now you want to trap me here in this stupid little town. I got to get out of here. And if you had a lick of sense, you'd give up that baby, and you'd get out of here, too. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And today, we will be talking about that season three episode you've been long 
expecting, huh? huh? <laughs> Eight and a half months. We will also be bringing you an interview with Ann Walker, who played the purple-haired punk pioneer Leola in this episode. She speaks to Albie about her time on Quantum Leap and everything she's been up to since. So, guys, how are you doing? Are you excited to be talking about this? I'm super excited. Very. This is a classic episode. Everyone loves this one. I love to disagree with the majority and I love to find excuses to argue with people that say uh, any episode of any TV show is the best. But it's so hard to find an argument for this one. Um, Eight and a half months is one of those ones that everyone remembers and they remember it for good reasons. Because this is such a classic episode, I want you to tell me if you can remember where you were when you first saw it and how you're expecting to respond to it on this rewatch for this show because I don't know about you guys, it has been years and years since I saw this episode. So I had some very definite ideas going in. Allison, can we start with you? I've seen this episode probably more than any other episode. Uh, I've watched it a ton. Um, <laughs> I love it. It's my second favorite episode, I think. Um, there's one that just barely edges it out. But um, I just think it's a lot of fun. But one of the things I also appreciate about it is that it takes a really goofy concept and then plays it very straight. It's mostly a drama, and you wouldn't really expect that for a, uh, an episode about a guy getting pregnant. So I enjoyed that. Uh, when I first saw it, That's that was my impression of it. Like I, I appreciated that they didn't just go the like Arnold and Junior route. I don't know what Arnold Jr. is. Can, can you elaborate? <laughs> is this a young American thing? Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Junior? Oh, oh you guys gosh. Know, that was the Arnold Schwarzenegger pregnant movie? Oh, not, not that young. No one knows. What the... I've, <laughs> no, no, I've I'm on a first name that. basis with Arnold, my good buddy Arnold. <laughs> You'd have said Arnie, we might have had a better chance. Or Sorry. Arnold. You could have said Arnold. Arnold. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think that might be after I stopped watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. But isn't that what Movie Nights is for? You watch these movies so we don't have to? <laughs> I, I have not done... Don't don't even say so we don't have to. Don't even act like you don't know. <laughs> Taking me right down off my high horse. <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've not... Uh... I've not done Junior on there, but uh, that is a movie I also kind of appreciate for different reasons. <laughs> I have not seen Junior since it was out. That was a long time ago. Uh, what that that staple in everyone else's uh, everyone's household, Junior? <laughs> yes, everyone had it in their video collection. <laughs> I'm going to assume that it's about Arnold Schwarzenegger getting pregnant. You don't. You've never heard yeah, of you Junior? Actually, give me a year that it came out. It was in the '90s. It was like at the height of his popularity. Ninety-two, three. In the 90s, I was in college and then getting married. I was a busy dude. How did you not at least hear jokes about the Arnold Schwarzenegger pregnant movie? <laughs> I don't know. I live under a rock. <laughs> I know nothing and I know about Junior. I, I watched more movies while I was at uni. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, maybe we could do a podcast about that. That would be great. Hey, guys. All right. We just found it. Our first bonus content for Patreon that we're going to do all together. We will do a junior commentary. Are we on board? I, I say not a commentary. I, I think a whole series analyzing <laughs> it five five minutes at a time. Junior, the junior minute podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Episode one, the opening credits. <laughs> the long asked for sequel to twins. Oh my goodness. Uh, hey, can we get Danny DeVito? That would be great. <laughs> Get him to be on the podcast to talk <laughs> <Yes>. about Junior. <laughs> I'm sure that's the first thing everyone asks him about. 
I gotta say, I think it might be easier to get Arnold Schwarzenegger than Danny DeVito at this point. So. Any danger of us talking about Quantum Leap? <laughs> we were talking about initial impressions, and then I derailed it with the junior thing. No, uh, no, think... you improved it with the junior thing, and thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. What, what about you, Matt? What did you think? Yeah. Okay, so uh, to answer Chris's question specifically, I don't remember many of my first viewings of Quantum Leap, because I was about 11 or 12 when I first saw this. So, um, And growing up in Britain, my any warning I had of what was going to be in the episode was one line in our local TV guide. Uh, So yeah, I'm sure at the time I was pretty shocked. And yeah, I've seen this episode a few times over the last few years. Um, So I kind of, uh, when I I reviewed it for the podcast this week, kind of knew what to expect. Yeah, Alison, you're you're exactly right. It's, it's It's a fun episode. And Dean particularly has a lot of fun with it and there's a lot of laughs, but everyone else is playing it so straight. I mean, this this is typical of Quantum Leap, really. It's Scott and Dean doing one thing and all the rest of the actors there to try and sell the reality of it. But they do it so well that, uh, yeah, you, you end up with a, a good story about teen pregnancy in the middle of Scott Bakula waddling around. Well, the reason I asked that question so specifically is because... If you guys remember at the end of the last podcast, when we were teasing this at the end of Runaway, I I told you that this was the first Quantum Leap episode I had ever seen. And I was so happy to be talking about it, not only talking about it here with you guys, because I know we're already killing it with twins. I mean, we're, (laughs) what was it expecting? (laughs) Arnold. Anyway, I wanted to see how it stood up. And I was so happy when I rewatched it that it did stand up because this is the memory I have. I was in my bedroom in my parents' house. I was probably between breaks at college. So it was probably like a summer rerun or something because I remember it being light out. And I see Scott, it's that that famous scene that you see, it's, it's in the credits, it's in the opening in the saga cell, when he's walking down the street with his, with his knuckles in his back and Dean is next to him in that red jacket. And I, I looked at, my mom was in my room, it was on the TV, and I said, what is this? What is this show? And she said, oh, that's, that's some kind of time travel show, your dad really likes it. And I was like, what, time travel? Because I'm such a time travel nerd that I... Quickly, you know, okay, mom, get out. I'm going to sit, I'm going to watch this. And it was so different and so weird. And the fact that Al is a hologram and the fact that nobody sees Sam for who he is. And they're talking about the waiting room and they're talking about the whole mind versus body leap and where's the baby. And there was so much in this episode to sink into, not only as a casual time travel viewer, but as like a quantum leap geek. There's so much mythology in this episode about the mechanics of leaping um, that I don't know that they've asked on the show much before. Before. So it had everything that I wanted going right in. And it's really what sucked me into the show. So I was happy that I was going to be able to be on the podcast talking about it. And I'm happy to say that I was pleasantly surprised by the rewatch because I remember it as this big moment in my Quantum Leap fandom. But I forgot just how funny it is and how genuine it is and what a terrific episode it is, despite all the baggage that I bring to it. <laughs> so, th- so that being said, you guys know where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm prone to gush, and this one is the gushiest. So bear with me. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Chris, can I, can I just ask, you're talking about your first viewing of that. Would, would that have been on the original airing back in March 91? <sighs> no, it would have to have been the summer of 91, because I would have been, in March of 91, I was in Missouri 
going to college. I had just gone away to school. I'm from New York. I had traveled to Missouri to go to school. And I have a distinct memory of seeing this in my bedroom in my parents' house. And it had to have been during the semester break over the summer. Yeah. So, so it, had the, to, it, it, it was probably a rerun. Yeah. It's the, the week in June that year, they, they stripped five episodes. Um, and that was one. The reason I ask is because, um, and this is a bit of nerdy trivia, but I'd be really intrigued to know what people thought who picked the show up on the actual first airing. Because what we had was three episodes in a row. We had Runaway, all about uh, a woman who has a, a grown family and is struggling with that, followed immediately by a repeat of Another Mother, where Sam leaps into a mother who's struggling with her teenage family, followed by a leap into this episode, where Sam plays another woman. And anyone that's coming into the show at that point has to be thinking, okay, so this is all about a dude that just leaps around time learning about women <laughs> and, and being women most of the time. It's a really odd little run of episodes that. Well, this was this was one that they advertised a lot because uh, mm. I've seen uh, interviews online and they would go around on talk shows and that was one that they would bring up a lot. The fact that he leaped into a pregnant woman because it's just such a, a strange episode to do and, and such a kooky kind of plot so they would bring that up a lot this was the point and it, it had been off the air a couple of months and it was looking like it was going to be cancelled so they were they were making a big deal promoting it to, to try and get people actually watching it there was an ad of, from the like a newspaper ad about this episode that i thought was really funny that was um it was playing up the this whole like goofy comedy angle so there's like Scott Bakula with his hands on his back and they kind of puffed out the the maternity outfit to look like he's got the stomach and whoa what's going on <laughs> yeah. and the text saying i'm so glad to be back on wednesdays especially because i'm pregnant which doesn't make any sense <laughs> Why would him being pregnant have anything to do with it being on Wednesdays? Let's just mention the pregnancy as often as possible. People will tune in. Apparently people did. Maybe this is the episode that saved the show. They're like, we're back and we're better than ever, guys. <laughs> we're ripping off Junior. <laughs> ripping off Junior. It's not a tumor. Oh, Jesus, you guys are the greatest. Um, let me ask, though, uh, Matt, when you're talking about that that string of episodes... When, when are we going to throw to the recap, by the way? Is this going to be the longest intro ever? <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I just had to check. Junior was 1994. So actually, that might have been inspired by this. Ah. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger called up Scott Bakula for tips. <laughs> you are so vulnerable. Teach me. <laughs> you're so sensitive. <laughs> I'm not going to try doing my Arnie impression. You guys carry on. You know what? I'll save my question for after the episode recap. Season three, episode 12, eight and a half months. Original broadcast date, March 6th, 1991. Written by Deborah Pratt. Directed by James Whitmore Jr. While keeping the Rickett family intact managed to prevent one teen pregnancy, unfortunately, Sam couldn't prevent this one. Sam leaps onto a hospital gurney and is being wheeled into the hospital's delivery room. A middle-aged woman assures Sam that everything will be okay. Seeing stirrups, Sam freaks out and glimpsing his reflection in the mirror sees that he has leapt into a heavily pregnant teenage girl. Once Sam has been calmed, he is able to reassure the doctor that as his water hasn't broken and that the contractions have stopped, the baby isn't coming so he is discharged. 
It's November 14, 1955, and Sam is in a small oil rig town in Oklahoma. Being an unwed teenage mother, Sam's host, Billie Jean Crockett, has been kicked out of her home by her father and is treated like a social pariah by most of the town. Dottie Billings, friend of the family and former girlfriend of Billie Jean's father, has taken Billie Jean in and is allowing Billie Jean to work at her beauty parlor until the baby comes. The plan is for Billie Jean to give the baby up for adoption. Dottie had had to rush Billie Jean to the hospital when she went into labor, and when they return to the salon, they find that one of Dottie's customers, Leola, has wound up with badly damaged cotton candy pink hair that is falling out because her perm rollers were left in too long during a coloring. Leola has a fit, calling Sam a two-bit huzzy, and angrily tells Dottie that she should have never taken Billie Jean in, that it's not Dottie's problem, and that Billie Jean will just bring down everything she's worked for. Dottie's boyfriend, Keeter Slade, also has a go at Sam and Dottie, but the other customers come to their defense, saying it was Leola's own fault as she wouldn't let Dottie's apprentice, Effie, a prepubescent black girl, take down her hair just because of the color of her skin. Dottie tells Sam to go inside and rest his feet, and as Al has arrived, it's a good opportunity to chat, but not before Keeter angrily tells Sam to drop the baby and get rid of it. Al tells Sam that in the original history, Billie Jean gave the baby up for adoption. A decision that she deeply regretted, and spent the rest of her life trying to find the child. Sam is there to find a realistic way for Billie Jean to be able to keep her baby. Easier said than done, as Billie Jean hasn't finished high school, doesn't have a job, and doesn't have a support system to help her. Ziggy is also predicting that if Billie Jean delivers her baby in the waiting room, then when Sam leaps out and Billie Jean goes back to her time, the baby will stay in the future. This puts a very tight time limit on Sam to complete his mission, about 36 hours, unless, according to Ziggy, Sam delivers the baby first. This confuses Sam and Al greatly, as it is just the illusion of Billie Jean's physical R that everyone sees, not her body, and thus not the baby either. And, being a man, Sam would never be able to carry a baby. Al warns Sam not to get stressed, as Sam's mind is psycho-synergizing with Billie Jean's and it could affect the baby. It appears that this works the other way as well, as Sam starts experiencing pregnancy symptoms, like nausea, fatigue, mood swings, hot flashes, cravings, and constantly needing to relieve his bladder. When Sam asks who the father of the baby is, Al says that they don't know, and that Billie Jean is too traumatized to press for an answer. She is in a bad way in the waiting room. She was in full labor when she leapt, and it took every doctor on the staff to stop it. And she also went into shock when she saw Sam's reflection. Sam thinks he should try to patch things up with Billie Jean's family, but her mother is dead, and her father refuses to see her. Figuring that it can't hurt to try, Dottie drives Sam to the oil rig, where Billie Jean's father, Bob Crockett, works as the foreman. Bob is not happy to see them, and Sam is gawked at by all the workers. In his office, Bob tells Sam that he heard that Billie Jean was planning to give up the baby. Sam replies that he has changed his mind. 
He's going to keep the baby, and that he needs Bob's help, believing that the best option is raising the baby in a family of the three of them. Bob says he refuses to spend his life paying for Billie Jean's mistake. Sam reminds him that the mistake will be his grandchild, which angers Bob. Condescendingly, he tells Sam that the only way the baby can be kept is if he gets married to the father. But Bob does offer that Billie Jean can move back home after the baby is born, if she gives it up. When Sam walks away defeated, it's clear that Bob is second-guessing his decision. Later that day, Cassie Taylor from the adoption agency visits Sam with adoption papers to be signed. It's made clear that if he signs the papers, there is no way that Billie Jean could ever get the baby back or even know where the baby goes or have any contact with it. Cassie is surprised by the sudden change of heart and tries to convince Sam that the baby will have a better life than Billie Jean could possibly provide, and that Billie Jean needs to take care of herself. But Sam is adamant that while he believes in adoption, he can't give up the baby. After Cassie leaves, Dottie sees how upset Sam is and tries to comfort him. But it's feeling the baby kick which raises Sam's spirits. Euphoric, Sam tells Al that he believes that he is pregnant. Al thinks it's impossible and tells Sam to get real. The baby's due in five hours and they still don't have any idea how Billie Jean is going to be able to raise the baby. Nothing short of a miracle will convince Billie Jean's father to help and they still don't know who the baby's father is. Sam thinks Dottie could help, but when he asks, Keeter gets so angry that he walks out. And Dottie refuses, because she had told Keeter that Billie Jean would be gone once the baby comes, and she doesn't want to lose him. Al agrees that Dottie can't be expected to take on Billie Jean's problems, and he and Sam realize that the only one left who could help Billie Jean is the father. But they don't know where he is. Effie, who is doing some chores, overhears Sam's part of the conversation and pipes up that Willis should be finishing up work about now. Al warns Sam that this is a long shot, but Sam snaps back at Al, telling him that if he thinks this is the wrong thing to do, then he should contact the grown Billie Jean who had spent her life searching for the child and ask what other options she thinks there could be. Having gotten Willis's whereabouts from Effie, Sam intercepts him on his way home, and they discover that he is a teenage boy. It now makes sense why Billie Jean never told anyone who the baby's father was, as Willis works for her father at the oil rig. Willis is surprised to see Sam, as he and Billie Jean had agreed to not see each other again, even though he liked her a lot, and Billie Jean was the only person in town who really understood him. Willis says that at least the ordeal will be over with soon, and that they should have just gone through with the abortion when they had the chance. Shocking, Sam. Sam explains that he is going to keep the baby, which horrifies Willis, as Billie Jean had told him she was giving the baby up, and he has since been accepted to college with Billie Jean's encouragement. His scholarship won't cover anything other than his room and board, so he won't be able to send money to take care of the baby. Willis tells Sam that he has to get out of this dumb little town, and that if she has any sense, Billie Jean would just get rid of the baby and do the same thing. 
As Willis runs off, Sam experiences a contraction and collapses, wincing in pain. Sam manages to struggle back to Dottie's house as a thunderstorm starts. Effie is especially stressed to see Sam in such a bad state. Dottie's car has a flat tire, and the local doctor is busy helping people who were injured in a car accident. Dottie calls Keeter for a lift, but he flat out refuses to help that trash. Fed up with his selfishness, Dottie breaks up with him. Sam has no choice. With his contractions just five minutes apart, he must help Dottie change the tire. Sam is adamant that Billie Jean's father needs to be there when the baby is born, so Effie frantically hitchhikes to the oil rig as he is unable to be reached by telephone. With a new tire on the car, Dottie is finally able to take Sam to the hospital. Meanwhile, Bob returns to his office just as Effie arrives. Bob is not concerned hearing that Billie Jean is in labor until Effie, who had seen her own sister bleed to death in her mother's arms at just the age of 17, says how critical Billie Jean's condition looks. At the hospital, Sam is in agony and insists that he is going to have the baby. Al tries to snap Sam out of it, thinking it's psychosomatic, until Ziggy tells him that the baby is not in Billie Jean's womb. At that moment, Bob arrives and seeing how much pain Sam is in tells him how much he loves his daughter and that he'll do anything she needs. While the doctor says he can see a head of curls, Al tells Sam that everything is fine. Bob marries Dottie, and together they help Billie Jean take care of the baby. With one final push, Sam leaps. We should have thrown to the recap using the Arnold accent. <laughs> Zoe, tell us about the episode. Yeah, but do that, but cut out every previous reference to Junior and just leave people wondering. <laughs> Why are they doing Why? that weird-ass accent? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So we're back. And uh, Allison, you do an amazing Arnold. Amazing. Oh, thank you. I want to know, though, Matt, before I lose the thread of that, that conversation that we were just having, was that a conversation more of a free-for-all, but whatever that was before the episode <laughs> recap, I would like to know, when you, you said that they ran uh, Runaway, Another Mother, and Eight and a Half Months in a String, was that during the original series run, like the season run, or was that during the rerun, the summer run? Yeah, that that was the original run. So um, okay. the, the very first airing of Runaway uh, leapt out into Another Mother. And some of the home video releases still have that, that leap into Another Mother as well. Yeah, I think actually the NBC uh, website has it leap into Another Mother too, yeah. if I recall. The reason I ask is because it would make sense if if you think about, we've, we've spoken about this before, Quantum Leap being more of a male-centric show. If they want to capture a female demographic why not put a string of episodes together that mm. deal with primarily female issues? And I thought that maybe they decided to do that over the summer hiatus when they were in reruns to package it that way because whatever was on the air that was counter-programming for Quantum Leap that was appealing to women, maybe they weren't watching that any longer because they had already seen it. So instead of watching a rerun of, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy, you could say, hey, there's this pregnant dude over on Channel 4, you know? So it's just interesting to me. I always try to think like a producer and like, what's the logic behind that? And it seems to me that's a grab for a certain kind of audience is the logic behind that. They had uh, or still have a huge female demographic, though, don't they? Like, I, I would hazard a guess that it is more than 50 percent 
uh, female demographic. I think in terms of fandom, I think you're absolutely right. I feel very outnumbered as a Quantum Leap fan who also happens to be male, because it struck me when I went to my first couple of Quantum Leap cons that it was it had to be 85% female. And I think that's just because, you know, the ladies love Scott. And if there's anything <laughs> the ladies love more than Scott, it's Dean. So, oh man, yeah. Well, I mean, you got like the eye candy with Scott Bakula, and you had all the the women swooning over him. But I feel like it's a show that is not afraid to talk about feelings and emotions and other people's problems and and trying to write things. And I think that's something that very much appeals to a female demographic. Yeah, twenty three episodes with Scott Bakula getting his top off. Probably didn't hurt either. For sure. But, well, it's not... You know what? There's a lot of shows that are centered toward guys. Like, I'll point to Supernatural, for instance, where there is a very posturing, testosterone-heavy focus. And a lot of, like, you know, we're the tough guys and it's kind of gritty. And Which doesn't mean that all shows geared toward guys are like that. But uh, when you contrast that with something like Quantum Leap, I mean, it's a completely different thing. So even though it has two lead characters who are male, uh, I don't feel like it's really that much of a guy-centric show. Yeah, for sure. I guess we're, we're going to go into the themes. Yeah, I mean, we can. I, I have them there. There are some things I want to talk about. Like the themes I put down for this one are teen pregnancy, social stigma, intolerance, hypocrisy. But th it all seemed like it was one giant theme that incorporated all of that, didn't it? It's a very, like, it's a simplified plot. There's not really, like, too many branches for it. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry what they're talking about. But it feels like every character is being pretty damn selfish, but it's written and performed in such a way that you, you kind of get why. And you, you can see it from everyone's point of view. Yeah, all right. Well, so then why don't we start there? Why don't we start with some of the characters? And the best one to start with, I think, would be Billie Jean. I mean, because she's going to keep her baby. And if that's not a little bit on the nose, I don't know what it is. It got my third rewatch. I said, wait a minute, Billie Jean? That's her name. <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna keep her baby. She's uh, not my lover, but, uh, uh, yeah, but, but I'm, maybe I'm confusing it with like yeah, Papa don't preach, and I, I don't know. It was just <laughs> you know a smattering of '80s callbacks there. But what I liked about the portrayal of Billie Jean, even though this might have been the most we've ever seen the mirror character in the episode. I mean, they just keep going back to her. But Sam as Billie Jean wanting to do the quote right thing to take responsibility for her own child. She is thwarted at every turn. And people just, they like, like you said, Matt, they all seem so damn selfish and so willing to ostracize her, some much more than others. Even her own dad says something like, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life paying for your mistake. Yeah. So, I mean, how does anybody in this episode, except for maybe Dot, have any moral footing to stand on? And I guess that goes back to the theme of hypocrisy. I think this one really plays on the hypocrisy of, I, I don't want to say those times because I'm sure things like this still go on, but it's the hypocrisy of, well, you were irresponsible for having this kid and it's going to ruin your life and the life of everyone around you. Oh, wait a minute. Now you want to take responsibility for the situation you're in? Well, how dare you? That's going to ruin your life and the life of everyone around <laughs> you. And it's just like she's in an impossible position. And I think the episode did a really great job of sort of highlighting that. 
I don't know if everyone is a monster in this, but I do think that they did a good job of portraying what it would be like in the 50s for uh, a young unwed mother. Uh, You know, a, a teenager getting pregnant even today, there is some social stigma there, but especially back then, I mean, so the way that people reacted to her is how they would react. I do think that there were people that were sympathetic to her, though. Like, there was Dottie, there was Effie. I don't think Effie was against her, you know. Uh, but there was obviously some villains, too. You know, you have Keeter, who was absolutely monstrous to her. Can I just say that I think that Hunter Von Keer, he's the one who played Keeter. He's got to be the MVP of this episode because you just loathe him from the first frame <laughs> on. I mean, I know he's sort of a one-note, two-dimensional character, but goddammit, if he didn't, you know, do everything he could to make him as reprehensible as possible. I absolutely loved every time he was on screen because I was just cringing. Every line of dialogue, he was just so mean. And, like, even if you don't agree with, okay, the situation that she's gotten herself into, you look at a 16-year-old girl who's just alone and scared and vulnerable, and you still just demoralize and debase her every chance you get. I mean, that's a special kind of asshole. <laughs> I was just thinking about that that shot of, of him sitting in the salon chair, drinking a beer, and lifting his feet up so Dottie can, like, vacuum underneath him. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just sitting there, I ain't gonna move, I gotta get drunk. Yeah, he sells the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> I love that effect shot, too, of Al um, putting the ash in his drink. Yes. That was pretty good. You've kind of got to wonder what he's been doing with his ash the last few seasons. <laughs> is the imaging chamber just full I guess of- that the floor of the imaging chamber is just, just ashy. Yeah, it's got to be littered. Just trudging through old cigars. Right? <laughs> I think there's some poor ensign that's standing guard outside the door with a hoover. Oh. Every time Al leaves, he's got to go in and, you know, mop up cigar ashes and whatever else Al has in there. But it's funny. You'd think maybe the ramp up to the imaging chamber has footprints on it, ashy footprints from Al's uh, Birkenstocks or whatever. Um, never thought of that. Thank you, Allison. I, I did like that effect shot too, but it was a little obvious and they had to stay on it just a hair too long so that you could see Al, you know, very conspicuously tapping his ash into Keeter's beer, into the open neck of the beer. And again, I think it, it worked as a visual gag, but it was a little bit too much like, get it, get it. This is what we're doing. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I mean, like his hand was through him the whole time. So it's not like one of those where you're like, okay, an effect's coming because they're holding on it a little long. Like, you know, it kind of immediately happens. And I appreciated the technical aspect of that because they had to figure out where he needs to stand, where that beer needs to be held, where his hand needs to go for this to look like he's putting the ashes in there, even though he's standing in front of a blue screen. It was well choreographed for sure. Oh, it absolutely worked. I just thought they lingered on it just a tad too long to get the joke across. But that's a nitpick. One thing that I appreciated is that the character of Effie in this um, because she's just a supporting character, but that actress was so good. That little girl, she had great comedic timing. Oh, she's so good. Yeah. And she had great expressions and I just was fascinated by her. Like for me, that was the MVP of the episode. I thought she was great and I appreciated, and I think this was Deborah Pratt's doing again, that she was a black character in the fifties and it had nothing to do with her race at all. Like she, I mean, there was like a line about like you know, her brown finger or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, Deborah Pratt's really good about writing in supporting characters 
that are black that don't necessarily have to do with their race, even if it's an episode that's uh, primarily centered around white characters. It's funny you should say that because I, I agree with you. But after The Colour of Truth, this is at least the second time Deborah Pratt has written in a young, female, sassy black character. And I was watching her thinking, Deborah, you're writing yourself, aren't you? This, this, is, <laughs> this is you as a kid, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was my take. But actually, yeah, maybe there's something, um, maybe there's something a bit deeper there for me to spot. She was good at the drama stuff, too. The shot of her when she goes to to James Whitmore Jr. and she says, like, my sister bled out and she died when she gave birth. Mm -hmm. There's that shot of her in the rain with these huge eyes staring at him and you just your heart breaks for her. And that was just that was great. As does his. I mean, that's the that's what breaks him eventually. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I don't want to be contrarian, but Effie annoyed me. (laughs) <laughs> whatever <laughs> I, you know are what we gonna have like an effie battle here yeah we, i guess we could <laughs> no i i think that you're right allison absolutely that when she was able to do something a little bit more dramatic i really got to like her especially when she was having the conversation with billy jean uh about willis and the way that she was talking about Willis and stuff that only Billie Jean would know about it shows you i mean that's good writing too because it shows you that it looks like Effie and Billie Jean are actually really close. And Billie Jean probably relates Mm -hmm. to her because she's young too. And they're probably actually pretty good friends. And when she was able to be like a more sympathetic character instead of a wisecracking one-liner machine, I really got to like the character. But everything else, it was almost like 80s TV kid obnoxious (laughs) is is the way I felt. Because everything she said was just like, uh mm uh-huh, like like just this sass for the sake of being sassy. And I found that it just got on my nerves after a while. Here, here's something that I hadn't thought about until this conversation. Do you think that Effie being black had to do with her relating to Billie Jean because of the social stigma? And I realize it was better in the 50s, but they are still in the South. Yeah, for sure. They're, they're both outcasts at this point, to an extent. I, I didn't think of it that way. I just thought that maybe it was because they were the two youngest. Um, I didn't see the outcast part, but maybe that's what caused them to grow a little bit closer, is the fact that Billie Jean found herself on increasingly thin ice. And if anybody could relate, it would be Effie. So, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting thought, an interesting observation. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to talk about Willis for a bit, because... Going back to what you you asked earlier on, Chris, about um, what my feelings were when I first saw this episode, what my feelings are now, I don't really remember way back then, but I know for a fact that when I was a teenager, I would have just out and out hated Willis, partly through to through jealousy. Um, you know, I, I was not exactly popular with the ladies. The the idea of um, this guy actually being able to get a woman pregnant, I think I probably would have been pretty against Willis. <laughs> looking at him now, no, I, I, I'm being honest here, but looking at him now, as an adult, looking down at him, he's, I mean, he's still quite a deplorable character. He's another one of these selfish characters that's not helping the situation at all. But I felt so sorry for him. He was clearly a real rabbit in the headlights. Um, that that confrontation scene on the uh, on the, the roadside, 
it's it's a lovely moment. It's it's really well acted by both performers. He's terrified, and I don't think as when I was younger that's something I would have realised because I'd have been too busy focusing on, hey, you got this woman pregnant, and now you're not even supporting her. You're a dick on multiple levels. But uh, I did feel really sorry for Willis, and I honestly, that's what I was thinking when I was reviewing this this week. I don't know if that's that's going to be a popular opinion, and I don't know if the listeners to this podcast are going to be thinking. Matt, why do you feel sorry for Willis? You shouldn't pity him. But I did. I kind of related to him a bit more now. And um, that feeling of I've made a mistake, I could run away from it, um, or I could could stay and do the right thing. Um, Billie Jean doesn't have that opportunity to run away from it, and Sam certainly doesn't. Uh, but but Willis is in that situation, which I found very interesting. He's a kid who got in over his head. You know, like he was just yeah. having sex, doing what kids do, yeah. or you know, some kids and uh, <laughs> some kids, some yeah. teens do this. <laughs> and she got pregnant, and it's really difficult to figure out what you're doing in this situation. So, I understand him. It doesn't make what he does right, but it it doesn't. No. It's understandable what he ends up doing. So, like, I don't hate the character, and. Uh, it, It's interesting the hints that they leave you in the episode that he is the father. It took me until, like, I don't know, a million rewatches later to actually notice him in the background when Sam is walking away from talking to the dad and you see Willis behind him kind of reach out to talk to him and then changes his mind. And I never noticed that he did that until way later. Yeah. And I think the fact that we we don't know how to really feel about Willis is a testament not only to the writing, but to the acting. Because I was saying the same thing as you, Matt. Why does Willis get a pass? Because he has a scholarship? Well, well, big deal. I mean, because yeah. he, he seems to really have a connection with Billy and genuinely feels bad. But you're still not going to do the right thing, dude. And it's just like... <laughs> Yeah, do you feel conflict? Because you can see it from his point of view. I mean, this is my ticket out. Mm. And to be here and to be shackled with a baby, we're going to be sunk forever. At least I have a chance and I got to take it. And you want to say to him, you're a slime ball. But at the same time, you're saying, I, I get it, because look at that town. What What is his future otherwise? Yeah. If he doesn't take this opportunity. And... Again, it goes to show one thing I would be pretty confident in saying is that, yes, teen pregnancy happens now. I think that girls, to a larger extent, could expect to find a little bit more of a support network to help them through it if and when they want to keep their child. I don't think the stigma is as bad, but it shows like back then, even if you wanted to help, even if they're really... You were going to be ostracized too. It's like, not only did Billie Jean not have a choice, it's like everybody around who maybe wanted to lend a hand felt socially constrained not to because of the Keters in the world. I mean, do you really think that her father, I don't think he wanted to abandon her, but when she goes to talk to him at work, what does he say? This is not a sideshow. Everybody move on. It's not that he's just, he's letting his embarrassment and his sense of propriety win out over his sense of obligation to his daughter. And again, reprehensible, but understandable. And it's just, it's just so weird, right? If you want to talk about like characters that do reprehensible things, but you feel for them, 
uh, James Whitmore as the father, so good because he he does some things that just really break your heart. Um, when he's talking to Sam in the shack or at work, Sam is talking to him about, you know, this is going to be your grandchild. And he just screams at him like, I don't want a grandchild. I don't want this. And you just your heart breaks. And Sam almost turns into that 16 year old girl at that reaction. He becomes so quiet and meek. And it just it's it's heartbreaking. And um, you understand his anger, but you also hate him for it. Definitely. And I have to say, I mean, a, a lot of that um, feeling that you're talking about is due to Scott's performance in this. This is an yeah. all-time great performance by Scott Bakula. And I said I was going to gush, but upon subsequent rewatches, sometimes you can see the seams in episodes. This one holds up every time you watch it. The jokes hold up. And the way that Scott goes from being incredulous and out of his depth in the beginning to taking on more and more of the characteristics emotionally and physically of Billie Jean to the point where he is this vulnerable 16-year-old girl. You you feel for him like he's, I just, I just want to keep my baby and it chokes me up. It's just like, oh my God. And it's a testament also to the other actors on set because not only is he playing that so convincingly, they're playing off of him as if he is that so convincingly yeah. and it's just like this this sleight of hand that could go wrong at any second but it doesn't it's just it's perfect throughout the entire episode one of my favorite moments of acting from him in this is when he's talking to the woman from the adoption agency and he has that line about he thinks that this is god's way of telling him not to make another mistake and he starts tearing up when he's saying this and you can feel the layers in this because he's not just talking about her he's talking about his own mistakes and and the things that he's done and i've read the script for this and that wasn't in it like that like it, he wasn't crying about it but he there was that same line in the dialogue but the way that scott bakula delivers it you believe it and and it's just such a, a poignant moment for me one of the issues i often take with a a, a commonly said thing about Scott's performance through um, the five years of Quantum Leap. A lot of people give him praise for playing a different character every week. And Scott did a lot of amazing things, and he is a really fine actor. But I generally disagree that most episodes, he's playing Sam Beckett, who just happens to be fudging his way through uh, whatever situation is, is on him that week. And he does that excellently. There are a handful of episodes where he really does start to become that character. And um, yeah, Chris, Allison, you've both touched on it already, but this is uh, this is for sure one of them. Absolutely. And I want to ask a really big question. You guys want to get a little bit into the weeds here? Okay. Always. How convinced are we that Sam is doing the right thing here? <laughs> yeah, I, well, if, I'm glad you brought that one up. If God, time, fate, or whatever deemed that it was then wouldn't you conclude that that is what the right thing's supposed to be? Nah, that's the easy but answer. Here's the, thing that, here's the thing that I wonder. Like, they know that, well, I don't know how they could tell from from Ziggy that she regretted never uh, finding her child. <laughs> that's, that's a huge question that but, I have, too. But yeah. um, if she regretted it as an adult, like, obviously, as a kid, she's like, I can't do this. I, I have to give this baby away because I can't take care of him. I can't be a, a good mother. Um, so she is not in that state of mind right now. 
So I don't know at what point in her life she realized that it was a mistake, that she regretted it. But once Sam leaps out and she comes back and realizes that she's keeping the baby, what happens then? Exactly. How do you know that she wasn't yeah. happily willing to give that baby up for adoption? And look at look at like what Willis said. You're the one that told me to go. So obviously Billie Jean gets it. <laughs> she knows the yeah. situation they're all in. There is no chance for any kind of advancement, no chance for any kind of upward mobility. Their socioeconomic status is going to be static. And it's just going to get worse if she's got a baby to take care of. So she encouraged him, get out, go, fly. I understand. Maybe she thought that the adoption was doing the right thing by her child. You too can get out of this. Go. Find a family. Have a life that has got to be better than the one I can give you right now. So when, she's, when she does leap back and she finds that Sam didn't sign those adoption papers, is she going to be like, what? the ever-loving bleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the only, as far as I'm concerned, big flaw in this episode is they have so many characters putting up so many strong arguments for her giving the baby away. And we're supposed to believe that all of those arguments are wrong. And I I almost thought, okay, this is, this is a, a big uh, anti-adoption episode and that's just the way that Deborah Pratt feels and it's, you know, this, this is what the whole thing's all about. But they slip that line in when he's talking to um, the lady from the adoption agency where Sam says, you know, I, I do believe adoption is a good thing. Um, it's just not for me. And that line kind of stands out as being the only part of the episode for me where it says, actually, this isn't just slating adoption overall, because everything else about it suggests that um, this baby is a, a prime candidate for adoption and that there's a lot of good things that could come out of it. I think they weren't... Yeah, anti-adoption. Because, yeah, they do have that line in there. Um, like, I think they did a pretty good job of establishing that, like, there were lots of different reasons why it would be good for her to not keep the child. But that's not always the right option for the person involved. Like, sometimes... They think that it's it's what they want, but they don't. That's not it's not what she ended up wanting. So having the child was more important to her than her status or or uh, how hard her life was afterwards. At least according to what they said he was leaping for. No, I understand all that, but I think that there was a golden opportunity in this episode to sort of to to explore a new horizon in quantum leaping. And Sam said it right on that road, right? You know, when 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 Willis has run away. And he just doesn't know what he's going to do anymore. And Al's like, well, you got you, you to gotta find a way. And he's like, what should I do? He said, go find Billie Jean, not the one in the waiting room, but the adult Billie Jean. And you ask her to tell me what I need to do because he's at a loss too. And I think that that would have been a beautiful way to expand like what they do on this series because who is to say – but Billie Jean, what she should do. And maybe that's that's more of a 21st century point of view and wanting to give her every option. And they had an opportunity to do so, even though, you know, it's problematic. I come from a top secret government facility and there's somebody <laughs> in the past. And, uh, you know, aside from all of that, it would have been neat to see if they could have gotten the adult Billie Jean, because like you said, Allison, Ziggy says, and this is a quote, she regretted giving up her baby for the rest of her life. Well, how, how do they know that? 
because she's been searching and she's not been able to find it. Well, I think maybe a lot of people who give up their baby for adoption do hold some measure of regret that they weren't able to, you know, keep the child or give the child the kind of life that they wanted, but they thought it might be the best thing for the child to give it up. Is that, well, I mean, we're talking quantum leap here. Is that really a good reason for divine intervention? in a case like this. Well, they've had divine intervention for I, much I know, less I, than this. The, uh, the whole exactly. Peggy Sue thing. Uh, surely, <laughs> surely a mother who was like, you know, I regret that I gave away my child and I never had the opportunity to know this child and raise them. Like, surely that's something. I guess you just have to take their word for it because sometimes they present things that Ziggy knows that how could you possibly know? You know there was a thing in Another Mother where they're like, you know, that kid was a virgin for so many years. Well, how would Ziggy know that? So I guess you're just supposed to take them at their word that this is a mother who was not able to find the child that she put up for adoption, and she regretted it. And if she had the opportunity to go back, she would do things differently. And that's what Sam's doing for her. But why this Why this mother and why this child? I, I'd like to know that there was something up with the adoption and what happened after that. It can't be that unusual that somebody's put up for adoption and the, the parent or parents later have feelings of regret. It's it's a it's a terribly emotional journey to go on. It's an important one to explore. But to say, okay, Billie Jean did this really hard thing, made a really tough decision, and then realised she was wrong, so let's go back and, and reverse it. It feels a little cheap. I don't think there has to be a big reason behind it. I mean, they could have said, like, you know, like... The here's why things would be different or here's why it was important. But I think uh, one of the nice messages about Quantum Leap is that there are no unimportant people. There are no people too small, <laughs> yeah. you know. There was a, a leap where he rescues a kitten out of a tree. So I don't know how they make any of these decisions, but I guess uh, whoever's leaping him around is uh, thought that it was important for Billie Jean to have her baby. Fair point. And I think in universe that works perfectly. I mean, that's enough in universe and for the, you know, for the premise of the show. You're absolutely right, Allison. I just found myself because it's such a big issue, maybe overthinking it a bit, but it it just begged the question. That's all. That's all. And uh, I'm glad at least, you know, I have Matt support on this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm going to be the contrarian. <laughs> I'm only teasing. No, um it was just something that I thought about on like maybe my third viewing. So it's not even that important to the episode per se, because the rest of the episode, it works so beautifully, like everything about it. And you just get so caught up in Scott's performance. Um, I know that I've been talking a lot about Scott, but Dean in this one had, I think, the best line of the entire episode. And it's almost like a throwaway line, but when they get back to Dottie's shop after the the false labor, or I guess the, the, the aborted labor, because Sam leapt in, and uh, <laughs> they're they're going back and forth. Men can't have babies. <laughs> and Al says something like, of course they can't. I can't. <laughs> oh, man. It was so subtle, but I love that delivery. It's like he just mumbles yeah. it like, well, maybe they can, but I can't. <laughs> I think maybe that's that's my favorite scene in the entire thing where he's talking to him in, in there. And uh, Sam's like falling asleep on the couch while he's trying to tell him what's going on throwing up in the bathroom holding his back uh, all of that was really funny that that desperation when he's blaming it on stomach flu it's just hilarious Wait, all right so if we're talking about this scene i 
want to talk about the leaping mechanics a little bit. Can we get into that? Oh, I wanted to go all nerdy on your butts on this one, so please. We can. It's We're not going to get any straight answers. You do realize <laughs> yes, it's spoiler alert. Yes. This, okay. this is going to go around in circles. Okay, well, w- this is an episode that so many people half remember, um, even if they're not Quantum Leap fans, they'll be like, I remember there was that one where he was like in a pregnant lady and then he like goes into labor or something, right? And this was the one that simultaneously clarifies things and confuses people (laughs) because people are like, well, I mean, if it's not his body, if he if he's just leaping as himself, then why would he be going into labor? But they also say in this episode that that's weird. It's weird that that's happening because it is his body and there's an illusion of the other person, which is what I always thought. I know that they have some lines that um, seem to contradict this, but uh I've always thought that it was it was mostly clear that it was his body past this point. And uh they they established that it is strange that that he's taking on all of these symptoms and I know there's like some head cannons that you can put in as to why this happens. Um I think really what the episode presents is that how he's able to give birth or any of this other stuff. It's uh it's it's magic. Is what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I don't I don't know how any of this would work unless it was it was just magic. Because comedy. <laughs> yeah. I think so, because it's a situation that's too good to pass up and then once you get them into the situation, you have to play up all of these contradictions. And that's another reason, like I said at the top of the show, why I got so like wrapped into this episode because they weren't just talking about what was going on plot-wise. They were talking about all these weird leaping mechanics. And Allison, like you said, I wrote down the quote because I think it's a quote from the first season. And remember, when I when I saw this, I had not seen Starcrossed or Genesis or any of the first season at all. So uh, this was all new to me. And Sam says to Al, it's just the illusion of her physical aura that everyone is seeing, right? Not her body. And meaning that her body isn't here. It's my body that's here, right? They're just seeing her. And so that's pretty definitive. But then how do they feel the baby kick? And when Sam is up in, you know, up in the stirrups at the end of the episode, the, the doctor says, I see a head of curls. How is the baby crowning out of his body? Magic. Because well, the, the baby disappeared from her womb. Did you not listen to <laughs> Al screaming? But, but where did it go? <laughs> if, if Sam is still there, where is it coming out of? Did you read through I mean, I just, <laughs> oh, I'm confused. Chris, you have to go there. It, the, the baby is simultaneously there and not there. It's shrodding his baby. That's, it's, it's magic. That's I mean, you really can't go. But there's a lot of things about how quantum leaping works that you have to just sort of fudge the lines a little bit and kind of just take what you can from whatever you think is happening you know like whenever he's leaping into like last week he leaped into a 13 year old kid well if someone's for instance ruffling his hair or moving his hat um they're feeling that hat it's not like uh, like there's an illusion there that they're touching someone who is much shorter uh, built differently than than them like how would dotty be able to feel his stomach unless I guess part of the illusion is that they believe that they are feeling, touching, seeing this person in, in every aspect of them. Otherwise, it'd be like, wait a minute, my hand just went through the stomach, huh? Like a hologram around him. 
right. And that's what confuses me. And you just, you just like, got... Like, how, how does the clothes fit him? I mean, it's magic. You got, you got really trippy there, too, because you're thinking then the reality that we see around us is basically our perceptions. And that's what, at the end of the day, saves Sam because they're expecting to see a 16-year-old pregnant teen to the extent where that if they reach out and touch a stomach that isn't there, they're going to feel it anyway. Well, we're all in the Matrix, you know. It's all what, what they want us to believe. Guys, it's late in the UK. This is too much. <laughs> uh, we're just getting started, Matt. You better uh, put on a pot of coffee, put the baby to bed. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I've not seen, I've not seen anything in, in the episodes outside of a wording on a line or two that would contradict that it was his body. Everything else is sort of you have to just sort of stretch your disbelief with how much physical bonding is going on, whatever the situation is. And I will maintain that they make it purposely ambiguous here. I think that the placement of the baby is a wild card throughout the episode. And I think that they did it so that they wouldn't have to decide one way or another. They didn't want to have to lock in that it's definitely his body or it's definitely his mind because that would limit the types of stories they would be able to tell going forward. 100%. How would he be able to see as a blind guy unless it was his own body? I, I don't know. How would he be able to del- give birth if it was his own body? <laughs> okay. Okay. Right? Maybe he's it, both. Say, it, Works both ways. I, it's like a Brundlefly. You know, he's been there's a teleporter accident, <laughs> and he is both people at the same time. Oh my goodness! Invoke the spirit of of Jeff Goldblum. So I just want to see Sam vomit on somebody's arm and and start eating it. That would oh. be oh no. Where is this podcast? This is the strangest thing. <laughs> Runaway didn't go into any of this stuff. Alison, Alison, it's about to get better because um, I, I was waiting for this to get to some kind of disgusting moment. And I think this is just... Um, <laughs> it wasn't me, it was Brundlefly. Brundlefly yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way. Okay, something disgusting. Okay. The, there's a, a classic scene where Sam... Um, sorry, what I'm about to do probably won't work on audio, so we might end up cutting this. Uh, Sa- Sam gets the urge to eat jello and onions. Yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That is classic, yes. Have you guys ever wondered what jello and onions taste like? <laughs> I can only assume awful because I loathe raw onions, so it just makes me skeeve. I skeeve every time I see that scene. Yeah, it'd probably be like a durian fruit or something. That's kind of oniony. I love raw onions, and I do like jello. I have a bowl in front of me with both. <laughs> oh yeah! Do we? Do we do I can do it. Prepared. Do you have? Do you have a video app on your phone? Because we oh. can put this up on the website, sir. Oh, hang on a minute. Um, my, my, the, I've only got 4% on my battery, so I, I, I'm going to give this a go. Hang on. Okay, okay. Everybody, you can watch this live at quantumleappodcast.com. I love you came prepared with this. Damn right I came prepared. Um, I've, been, I've been sat watching this for the last hour thinking, when am I going to get to eat this? So I just got to get a bit of both on my spoon. Uh, there we go. Oh, good God. <laughs> So Two good. really nice things that I like. Um, <laughs> creating something awful. Two things you used to like, right? <laughs> I'm going to have to finish yeah. this bowl now. It might put me off, but um, yeah. All right, so why don't we go uh, texture first? What's the texture like? Um, <laughs> well, it's it's. I used raw onion. I couldn't tell. I did watch the episode. And I, I, I think he cooked it, but um, I couldn't really tell. So yeah, it's kind of crunchy and wobbly at the same time, it, It's which is... Kind of, kind of bizarre to start with. Um, I was hoping that having sat here for an hour, 
the the jelly would have made the onion a bit moist, but uh, no, the the onion's still pretty crisp. <laughs> the, the sharpness of the onion has definitely been taken away a bit. It, it tastes more strawberry than onion. Okay, now let me ask you: Did you um, make the Jello mold and then? I don't know why I'm still eating this. <laughs> You're still eating it. <laughs> yeah. How <laughs> are you pregnant? <laughs> But did you cook the onions into the jello? Did you did mm. you boil the jello, put the onions in the mold and then let it set or did you let the jello set then dump the onions on no, top and just I, mix it all in? I cheated. I got some pre-made jelly earlier on in a in a little Okay, then little, actually then you're, you're doing it exactly the way they did it in the episode because if mm-hmm. you stick around for the credits, there's a longer scene of Sam eating the jello and onions where you see him actually pick up the bowl and then pick up like a little cup with raw onions diced up in it, pour them in and then mix yep. it all around. Mm-hmm. So I think you were actually being canon with the way you made that. <laughs> it's it pretty damn close. Um, actually, now I've had a few bites, it's not that bad. <laughs> I'm kind of getting into it. Wasn't that kind of a thing in the 80s, like onions in like weird sandwiches and stuff? Like there was, there was a movie that I used really? to love as a kid where they would eat like peanut butter and onion sandwiches. Like maybe <laughs> it's just that this? movie, I don't know. But I, I thought maybe for a little bit... That was a thing. Okay, if if you do that movie on movie nights, invite me on as a guest star, and I'll eat some. <laughs> he'll, he'll eat, he'll eat every did, sandwich in that movie. <laughs> I did try it once because of that movie, because it was my favorite movie, and like I, it. Oh man, I cut the onions way too thick. It was just a disaster. Mm. <laughs> Maybe if they were thinner, it would have been a gourmet thing. But I'm actually starting to to worry how much I'm enjoying this, and I, I'm gonna have to. <laughs> When I start eating this in front of people, I'm going to have to explain this to them. Well, you got to explain that uh, that you're pregnant, right? Yeah. That was a line I really loved in this episode when Scott Bakula goes like, Al, read my lips. I'm pregnant. Yeah. Yes. And then he just starts getting really the giggles. Funny. That was, yeah. And again, it was showing like he was just completely out of his mind on hormones at that point. And that's why another thing that made me wonder, I mean... Sam is wrapped up in this particular moment, and it seems like the right thing to do, but is he doing the right thing? And I'll I'll get off that. I know it's going too deep for a show that is ostensibly about, you know, one guy doing good. You have to assume that he's doing the right thing, because it's Sam. Of course he's doing the right thing. And of course, Billie Jean's life is going to be better for having the baby in it, and she's going to be closer to her dad, and Dottie doesn't have to suffer with that jerk Keeter for any longer, which is uh, always a good thing, but... Still, it just it just raised some questions. I'm glad, Matt, that I wasn't the only one to ask them. Um, have we lost Matt? No, no, no I'm just eating. Um, I can just you, hear clink, clink, clink. clink, clink. I know, so you're you're going to have to mute my mic for the edit, I'm afraid. Uh, nope, I, we're leaving all those clinks in. That's that's that is a testament to your fortitude, sir. Mm-hmm. So, so do we do we have anything to talk about with the final labor scene? I feel like we haven't really touched on this. Um, the only thing that I have to talk about with, with both flavor scenes, number one, the way Scott played it was brilliant in both. And number two, mm-hmm. I loved the doctor. I mean, again, we, we're used to seeing doctors, especially male doctors back in the 50s, being stern and patrician. But this, mm-hmm. this guy seemed like a really decent guy. And he knew just what to say to Billie Jean at the moment when he knew that she was probably scared out of her mind. So Yeah, I, he's very calming. Yeah, that's that's the only thing that I I mean. But as far as like labor scenes go, I thought it was okay. What stuck out, Allison, to you? Well, I just thought that that we should touch on it. Um, I remember reading it was probably in your book, Matt, that 
that final scene, it took about 12 hours to film. Maybe it was just that mm. scene in the hallway. It was really lengthy. And that's really intense for an actor to have to keep up that energy for that long for multiple scenes. Because I mean, it's not just, you know, the scene in the in the hallway and the actual labor moment and walking across the fields. And Scott Bakula had to keep that up through the whole thing. That had to have been exhausting. Do you think that maybe helped him be so realistic because he was just at the end of his rope and completely strung out? Yeah, he certainly looked exhausted. Right. <clears throat> Pardon me, I was just burping. Uh, it's going to happen. That's, that's, that's all right. It's um, <laughs> ra- rather you than me because I've now had half an onion and a whole thing of jelly. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, come on. Can we do slow clap? <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Your award's coming in the mail. <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing that sticks... Uh, sorry, this is such a cliche, but the one thing that sticks out for me about that labour scene is that he dashes into hospital and immediately is ready to give birth. It, it's such a TV cliche. You never have people waiting around for hours. I know drama, but... Well, he was walking down the road for a while, and then they had to change the tires. So there was some time passed, and they were kind of uh, keeping track of the contractions and the time. So I think more time passed than we saw, and you really just don't want to see, like, people waiting around the whole time no i know i know it's um they, they couldn't you can't make a, a a birth realistic without it also being pretty dull well, to bring in the drama yeah i mean you want to have that that climax of the episode and the fact that the dad runs in right as they're wheeling her in and yeah you know yeah. and they the daddy you know billy and you know and that's not it's like sam it's like I, I believe that he was calling for his daddy it was just that good but you're right matt it's just it's it's not realistic but it worked it works on yeah, camera. Yeah. You could see a really obvious shot of Scott Bakula in the the mirror when they're putting him on the table during the labor scene. Mm-hmm. It was huh. yeah, that was a pretty yeah. pretty glaring. Wow, uh, I missed that reflection error. Huh? You know why? Because I was so wrapped up in what was going on in the scene that I guess I just wasn't looking at the background. So hmm, always look at the mirrors. Always always look at the mirrors. Well, here's the thing is, you know me, I'm always tuned in, like hyper tuned in on the background because I'm looking for radios like a lunatic. Yeah. And I'm sorry, no radios in this one, guys. There was a radio playing throughout Dottie's house, even to commercials and weather reports, but we never saw the damn thing. But you know what? Like quantum leap has ruined me with mirrors. Okay. (laughs) Because I'm such a like, because I'll do that. Like I'll watch it like a hawk. Like I'm like, here's a reflective surface. Ha ha. I'm going to see like if how they covered this or how they didn't cover it or whatever. But then I notice when I'm watching other things, I'm just instinctively looking at the mirrors and I'm like, oh yeah, I guess in other shows, like people do reflect, right? Yeah, people have I, reflections. And it's them. <laughs> you just made the same point I was about to make. I, after a year or so of writing that damn book and looking out for reflections, the amount of times I'd be watching something, someone would reflect, and I'd jump out of my seat and scream, "Goof, goof!" <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, that's a okay. wrong show. It's um, it's true though. It's it, yeah, you get get that moment briefly where you think that's that's wrong. I'm going to intentionally stop looking for bad reflections in Quantum Leap. I don't want it to, to fall yeah, apart. Yeah, it's like not that. worth it. Not worth it. Exactly. Now. Yeah, most of the time, like, it's not a big deal. Like, that one, I think, was one of the more obvious ones. But most of the time, it's like, there's just things that you can't prevent and, you know, time constraints. So, I mean, like, it's 
I'm pretty forgiving of it. Um, just uh, since we're kind of on the topic of goofs, you uh, you mentioned the the mirror shot. Although this is quite a, a this isn't an exciting one, but it's one of the ones that makes me laugh the loudest uh, throughout the whole series. Um, right at the top of the show, the caption comes up: fifteenth of November. Thirty seconds later, we have a voiceover from Sam saying it was fourteenth of November. really (laughs) the timing is just so perfect i think maybe it was because a majority of it takes place on the 15th (laughs) i think maybe (laughs) all right (laughs) (laughs) i liked the music in this you know there wasn't a lot of like of a soundtrack there but the uh the orchestral music for it i really liked the string music that they used the the violins uh as these dramatic stings, like after uh, his father yells at him and they play that sort of haunting tune. I don't know. I, I liked it. The the only thing I can ever think of when anyone mentions music in this episode is that really cheesy, stereotypical country music that runs over the end credits <laughs> and that they then use later on in the series any time there's anybody from the South pops up. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. That's their stock South music. Yes, but it, it appears here first and it's, yeah, I can't remember anything else you're talking about, Alison, sorry. Um. <laughs> the, well, I mean, it, it was just some of the, the music that they used that uh, Velton Ray Bunch did that I thought was really great. And uh, there's not a lot of other songs in it like that they had to pay for rights for they did have some music replacements in this yeah the stuff that was playing on the radio while uh, sam and al are talking but you wouldn't really notice that it was replaced with something else unless you knew it was there mm. well that's what i was going to ask you guys because one thing that kind of annoyed me throughout the episode was the use of just this generic string steel guitar country music going on in the background and it just really screamed replacement. It really screamed public access it, library it that we don't though. have to pay for. No, so that was that's what was in the episode as it aired? Yeah, but there's only, like Alison said, I mean, there's only two pieces of sourced music in the episode, and both of those are replaced, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice them when the episode's playing. The, the only music you really notice is the, is the Belton Ray Bunch track. The one that sounds like stock music, to be clear, that's not the one that I'm complimenting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But there was some other stuff that I really liked. All right. Well, that's good. Yeah, that answers the question I had because it really seemed obviously replaced. But you're saying the replacement music was just as good as the original music. It was just uh, – it was some country music that was in the background when Sam and Al are talking in the back of the beauty parlor. Right. Yeah. That's that's where I noticed it the most and where it annoyed me the most. So I was thinking, you know, were they playing Johnny Cash originally or something – or Hank, some Hank Williams or something that we would have heard of yeah there's there's some patsy klein towards the start and then some johnny horton uh at keita's bar but the, but they're both they're so in the background i don't even know why they bothered to source them and uh, of all the music replacements in the series yeah it, it's not that they're well replaced it's just that you don't really miss the originals because they you didn't notice them in the first place they're, they're forgivable. In Quantum Leap, that's saying something because the music is such an integral part most times yeah. that uh, replacing it didn't really affect this episode. So that's nice to hear. I have one last failing, and this goes back to the whole mind-body thing. Don't you think it would have been awesome when Sam collapsed on the street after Willis ran away because he's such a slimeball that <laughs> as he's rolling around on the ground, we see a, a puddle spreading out around him? <laughs> oh! <laughs> 
would that be awesome? Because uh, How is show, that his water wording? was breaking. So I just <laughs> I figured that that would be a neat touch to like confuse the viewer further. Is it him? <laughs> is it not him? No, I don't know. People would think he was wetting. <laughs> yes, exactly. People would think he's wetting his pants. <laughs> you think I'm getting a little bit is. too much context in there, huh? Too too contextual. Yeah. It would be goofy as hell. <laughs> Chris, last time you gave us a, a visualization, I ate a bowl of jelly and onions. I have nothing else here to eat that can distract from this. You are on your own. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It just it seemed to me if he's if he's gonna go into labor and he's mm. about to give birth, his water would break. Sue me. Yeah, but it's it it would be the the aura of his water, so we wouldn't see it. I, everyone else would, but we wouldn't see. So it. we're feeling the aura of the baby's kick. We're seeing the aura of the baby's mm. curls. I'm still not convinced it's a body in this one, gang. We didn't see curls. I want to get into some headcanon here with this. All right. They they have some lines about this where uh, Al mentions that all of this stuff, the nausea and the puking comes early on and she's almost going to give birth. So it's not he shouldn't be experiencing these things. But Sam is. So my thinking is because Sam is physically bonding with Billie Jean he is experiencing basically an accelerated version of the pregnancy from the start into eight and a half months. So I think he's experiencing these things because he's going through it for the first time. So it's the nausea and the pukies because to him, that is, he's in the first trimester. Yeah. And then and then as he goes on, yeah, you see that he does take on her mm. characteristics. He takes it's, on like the, he can't get up that well. He's always got his knuckles in his back because he's like he's carrying a great weight. He walks like a pregnant woman progressively more throughout the episode. So Yeah. So I think like that is his body that. adjusting to this. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And his body jiving more and more without a Billie Jean, which also makes sense if the baby disappears from the waiting room at the end. It's almost like, well, we don't know what's going to happen here, but we're going to make this vessel, this receptacle, as much like the one that you're already in as possible. And maybe that's God doing some kind of whamma-jamma. Who knows? But uh, yeah, no, it's a good observation, Allison. And I didn't think about the puking part. I thought that maybe they just did it for dramatic effect. But you're right. There is a definite progression there. But again, headcanon, if he's tied to her like emotionally... If it's his body there and Billie Jean's body in the future, how are he and the baby having this intimate connection? There's obviously no chemical interaction going on. Is it emotional? Is it uh, – Allison, you said it's magic. Like if we're going <laughs> if we're going headcanon though, how does the baby affect his mood and vice versa? Because Al said you got to calm down because you're upsetting the baby or, or, or whatever. Never mind that Billie Jean is is there thinking that she's giving birth on a spaceship and is probably like catatonic <laughs> with terror. <laughs> you know, you think that would be affecting the baby a little bit more, but no, <laughs> Sam's got to calm down. Maybe that's part of Sam's initial kind of freak out when he arrives. I mean, I, that would be a scary thing anyway, you know, and obviously like, what are you going to do? Like you realize that you were there and you're supposed to be giving birth and, and you're a guy. But maybe the reason that he reacts exactly that way is because that's how Billie Jean is reacting in the waiting room. Could be. Could be. That would be maybe the first example of him being so emotionally tied to a leaper where he's taking on their characteristics. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a question, Matt. Mm. Is this the first mention of Dr. Beaks in canon and series? Uh, no, that would have been uh, What Price Gloria when... Al's talking about uh, all the problems he's having 
seeing his best friend wrapped up in the the body of a blonde oh. bombshell or whatever that's that's the first reference to dr beaks gotcha yeah he says he used to think she was cute too yeah <laughs> Oh, well, you're such a rapscallion. Yeah. <laughs> he gets away with that. We talked a little bit about Al uh, earlier in the, the podcast. I feel like this is not an Al-heavy episode. Like, Dean Stockwell has some great moments in it, yeah. but really the, the focus is on Sam and Billie Jean, and, and Al is sort of there to just kind of keep things moving. I think it has to be, because it's all Al can really do in this episode is provide some comic relief and it's important that we we spend a few minutes at the start of the episode establishing yeah yeah this is funny now let's move on and look at the actual plot and any dean that you you have later on is just going to make it more laughable and less um less real i didn't think of it that way but i guess you're right because it does get progressively more serious and Mm -hmm. dean's entire function towards the end of the episode is just to cause more drama even if if it's just him saying, you know, you got to do this, you got to do this, you 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 can't do this or or whatever, you're right. It, there's really not much that he can even give Sam to go on. Well, and he's he's got to keep Sam moving too because Sam's kind of all over the place in this episode at parts. So he's got to kind of keep him focused because he is sort of acting like a teenage girl. He is, but the the thing is, like what we were accusing everybody of at the beginning of this episode of. Billie Jean wanting to take responsibility, even though it's Sam, and then everybody telling her exactly why she shouldn't or she can't. Well, Sam is saying the same thing to Al. Well, I should go ask Dottie. Well, that would have happened 40 years ago if it was going to happen, so don't even bother. And well, Sam's like, well, we can't rely on the dad. We can't rely on the father. Who are we going to rely on? And Al is at a loss. I mean, so he's not even helping either. Sometimes he's just kind of there to be a contrarian, though, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like he's just there to argue with what Sam is doing, which I guess is is the point of his character to provide a, a different perspective. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's just sometimes a little bit thankless. But you have someone of Dean's caliber, and they can always make it seem natural. You know, you don't you don't get annoyed at him because he's just such a good presence on screen. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I think you're right that he probably isn't able to do much to drive the episode because I mean. It, basically going into labor is sort of the time that they have. So Sam's got to do something by then. So Al is there mostly for the comic relief, especially like during the labor scene. Like that could be very serious, but because Al is going in there like, you're not in labor. What are you talking about? Like he's trying to bring some levity to this. Yeah, and it works. It works for the most part. And it's also, it's kind of tough. Like, because what, as a writer, think about it. What do you do with Al? Because really the entire premise of this episode is that Billie Jean is between a rock and a hard place and she has no options. And for Al to just swoop in at the, you know, the 11th hour with this magic option that nobody thought of, I don't think that would have served the episode well at all. So... Yeah, I mean, he was necessarily sidelined, I think, for the for the dramatic impact. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you make a good point. All right, guys. So I think we've pretty much said it all about eight and a half months. So why don't we move on to final thoughts? Matt? Um, I'm going to circle back to what I said at the start. It, this is a, a known classic and... Known classic episodes of TV shows are not always actually that good, but uh, this one is justifiably so. It's it's funny. It's got a, a strong storyline. Yeah, it, it's an easy one to watch. It's one to come back to time and time again. Allison? 
I feel exactly the same way. Uh, I really love this episode. It's one of my favorites. I can watch it anytime and still enjoy it. I didn't see it as long ago as you guys, but uh, it kind of is, I guess, a comfort episode for me. There's some of them <laughs> that I just watch and I just it feels right. That's good. And I'm going to chime in and we'll all be on the same page with this because... I think this is an exemplary episode of Quantum Leap on story level, on message level, and even on fan level. There are just so many larger questions posed about the mechanics of leaping, and it just expanded a lot of what I think some of the geekier elements of the show turned out to be. A lot of that's rooted in this episode, in my mind anyway. So so yeah, I, I think this one is an all-timer. If you're going to do a top 10 of Quantum Leap episodes, this deserves to be in there somewhere. All right, great discussion, but I think people have been hearing from us enough, so we're going to throw to a break. And on the other side, we will be bringing you that interview with Ann Walker, who plays Leola. So stay tuned, everybody. You're an educator first, but also a disciplinarian and a humanitarian. You need the energy of youth and the wisdom of age. You have to be a mediator and above all, a friend. The more you think about the roles our teachers must play, the more you know they deserve our applause. Thanks for that, Scott. I couldn't agree with you more. Hey, Leapers, it's Hayden McQueenie here. Um, I'm actually a teacher. Uh, I teach mathematics. I'm an experienced tutor as well. I'm currently teaching engineering maths at RMIT University and doing a lot of private tutoring as well. I've recently started tutoring online. So if anybody in any year level, so primary, secondary or tertiary, needs any assistance with their mathematics, by all means, send me an email. Uh, my email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-N-I-E, at R-M-I-T dot E-D-U dot A-U. If you want to know a little bit about my qualifications, I have a Bachelor of Applied Science in Mathematics. I also have a Diploma of Education and a Master of Education. I've been teaching in secondary and tertiary schools for many years. And I'm also the Numeracy Curriculum Developer at the Technology Institute of Victoria, as well as a five-time presenter at the Mathematical Association of Victoria Conference. So I'm pretty sure I can help you out with your maths. Send me an email and we'll discuss how I can help you out. So once again, that email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N-I-E at rmit.edu.au. I look forward to hearing from you. He travels through time every Tuesday night on your TV screens. In the past year, he's been, amongst many other things, a blind piano player, a Chippendale stripper, and a beauty queen. And tonight, in the final episode in the present series of Quantum Leap, Dr. Sam Beckett gets his toughest assignment yet. Oh my, indeed, Scott Bakula, it's really, really good to see. It's a brilliant program, I really, really enjoy it. So on BBC Two, nine o'clock tonight, so I think it's the last one. Sometimes it's going to be a bit too late for me, but I, I just stay up, because you know, I have to be up early in the morning. Yes. Now, what a role for an actor. I mean, when would an actor be able to play all these different characters? It just wouldn't happen, wouldn't it? I can't imagine ever getting a role like this again, actually. It's been, uh, uh, I hope it's not the role of a lifetime. I hope there's <laughs> other things after it, but... Sure. Uh, 
it's such a great thing to go to work every day and have something different to do every eight days, when, which is how long it takes to shoot the show. And I'm constantly being challenged. I learn new things all the time. And uh, work never gets boring, which, of course, uh, is, the, is the downside of doing a long TV show sometimes. Sure, but because this is so different, I mean, playing all these different characters, how hard, though, was it for a man to play a pregnant woman? I mean, that must have been really extraordinary. I'm well, looking forward to seeing it tonight and <laughs> see how it goes. It was, it was a great thing to get to do because it's not something when you're studying to become an actor, you say, okay, now someday you're going to be a pregnant woman and how do you want to play? You never think about things like that. So uh, I... I spent a lot of time talking with my wife, reviewing uh, her pregnancy, right. uh, and I had a lot of friends uh, going through it coincidentally at the same time, so I was on the phone. So, all right, now what does a contraction really feel like? Right. And, uh, and then you just hope that you're not... Uh, I had a lot of fear about doing this role because I know so many people have a very... Uh, so many women have a very definite feeling about sure. their pregnancy, and it's very strong, and those images are very strong, so that if I do it wrong, people are going to be calling and writing, and he wasn't, you know... And the point of this episode was to really convince people that Sam was mm -hmm. somehow pregnant. What a, a brilliant idea for a, for a series. I mean, it's an extraordinary idea. Was it an immediate success in America? Did it take a while to build? It, it, took, it took a long time to build. It was a very hard uh, idea to sell. Um, it's amazing to me now as uh, I've been working so much, I haven't really been traveling. And this is my first time to really travel in, in, a, in three years. And it's amazing to be here in England, for instance, and someone saying, oh, we love the show, we love the show, this mm. week you're pregnant. And they're not even, they don't even think about it anymore. You know, right. in the beginning, the first time I played a woman, it was a big deal and, oh, how, how will it work? And now people accept almost anything that, that we yeah. do. And uh, that's really, it, it's amazing. It shows the power of the show because uh, sure. people have gotten past their hang-ups about what, what is he and who is he mm. and what they just accept it. And it's, uh, so we can do anything. You can. I mean, there are, there are yeah. no limits at no. all as to, as to what you can do it's extraordinary what sort of category is it put in in america is it sort of under the heading of sci-fi or, or what, what would you see well it's it's technically called uh, our drama uh television it's yeah. it's sci-fi it's fantasy it's part of that is uh i think scared some people away because mm -hmm. really at the core of the show it's a very uh gentle show about human relationships mm -hmm. and, and uh, there, there's always a good heart story involved and um some people feel like, oh, it's an, it's another sci-fi Star Trek, or there was a show in America. I don't know if it ever played here called the, the Time Tunnel. Yes, in oh the yeah, 60s. yeah. Remember that? It's running again oh, on Channel really Four. A great series, but not like ours at all. No, but no. people thought, oh, it's, that's what it is, and right. and so that was, it was hard to get people to turn it on. But once they turned it on, they've kept it on. Yeah. If you yourself, how? Where did you start? Where did you actually start acting? What made you start acting? I started acting. Actually, I, I had a rock band very early in my life. Did you? Like in the fourth grade. Right. And, uh, what sort of things did you play? Oh, at the time we were doing a lot of Beatles things right. uh, in the 60s. And uh, uh, we did everything. Jimi Hendrix and, and uh, right. Led Zeppelin. It's just wild stuff. I think back now about it. It must have been pretty terrible. But we had a good time. <laughs> we had a good time. Well, you enjoyed know. it? <laughs> yeah. yeah we had, my parents loved it, too. It was nice and loud. But... Uh, so I started performing that way. I did a lot of theater uh, as a kid, mostly musical things. Yeah. Uh, I did. A, there's a show called The Mall and the Night Visitors. I don't know if you know that. That's I don't a, think we've had it's that. A, it's it's a, well, wrong. it's a Christmas opera. It's Minotti wrote it, and so right. on. And I did that when I was 13, right. and okay. I kind of, I, I kind of got the bug there. I started in St. Louis, and I went to New York. I spent 10 years in the theater there, and then I moved to Los Angeles about six years ago. That's right. Thank you. You're two busy guys. Busy, 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 guys. Busy, busy. Now, the last time 
Oh, Dick Van Patten. Do you know Dick Van Patten? And this is Jimmy Van Patten, my son. <laughs> I'm teaching him to act. Now, you guys weren't like father and son or brothers at all when you first met. I mean, I hear stories that, well, Scott, you said you didn't think it was going to happen at all. I did? That's what I hear. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, he wasn't very good when he started. And, uh... Can we meet now? Thank you very much. What were your first impressions of each other? Uh, Dean, what do you think of Scott? I thought he was a pretty neat guy, actually. He thought, uh, we, we did a reading together for the network, and he said, boy, your reading was great. So everything was fine from then on. That's <laughs> 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 true, right? Scott? Well, I, we walked out of the reading saying, both of us saying, I hope you get this. I hope this works out because I like to yeah, work with you. Everybody does on every reading. So. Sure. No, they don't. But once we started shooting, we knew right away that we had something going, uh, like an interplay or, as they call it, chemistry. And it's true, and it's worked now for two and a half years, and we love entertaining people with it. We never know what the other guy's going to do, so we keep surprising one another, and it's like that. If the chemistry doesn't work, though, can you fake it? Can yes. Can it tell? Oh, yes. You've been, in a lot, you've been in a lot of them where you've had to fake? No, this one. No! <laughs> I think you can. I think it makes it a lot tougher to work 12, 14, 16 hours a day if you're working with somebody that you don't really like being around. And on the show, he's my only constant. He's the only guy I see on a continual basis because the cast changes every week except for this guy. Yeah. And same here. He's the only one I ever work with because mm. nobody else can see me or hear me. So, I mean, thank God I got Scott and we have a good time. Well, you guys stay here. I want to come back and find out what time travel feels like, okay? Yes. And what's going on with both of you guys personally. Be back with Scott Bachelor and Dean Stockwell right after this. There's something in the air because tomorrow, Quantum is leaping to Wednesday nights on NBC. What took you so long? The famous professional wrestler, that was Billy Graham. That was a guy? Here with Scott Bakula, Dean Stockwell, stars of Quantum Leap, which is making a leap from Fridays back to Wednesday, where you'd prefer Wednesday to be. Wednesday at 10. Well, no, the, our fans and the, the audience prefers us back at Wednesday at 10. They've been writing in a big campaign, and finally NBC has said, okay, put us back home at Wednesday at 10. We'll yeah, there you go. Starting this Wednesday, when he is a pregnant woman. I, we're going to get a chance to look at that in just a second, oh, too. Yeah. Great. But let's talk about that for a second, because in Quantum Leap, Scott, you, you have to play a bunch of different roles. Almost each week it becomes a different television show. That's a stretch. That's got to be a wild acting gig. It is wild, but it's also the greatest acting gig you could ever imagine, because it is def different every week. Uh, it changes. The range is, is limitless. We can do anything, and, and we keep doing kind of the impossible shows, so it's great. Impossible, because... You talk to a hologram of, D of Dean Stockwell every week. I mean, you've got to have chemistry. We talked about that before. You've got to have chemistry to do that. Yeah, yeah. And That's Dean? Oh, he's a rubber actor. He can do these stretches. I'll tell and you. I'm just happy to be there. To have a... Pre well, let's look at you as a pregnant woman yeah. sometime in the past. Oh, my Read my lips. It's impossible, Sam. So just forget about being the first male mother and concentrate on finding a way for Billy Jean to get to keep a baby. Well, what happened when you talked to the father? Oh, well, nothing good. It'd take a miracle to get him to accept Billy Jean and her baby. 
Well, you better work a miracle because according to Ziggy, that baby is due in less than five hours. God. What? What's wrong now? It's so hot in here. Hot flashes. Huh? I'm having hot flashes. You're not having hot flashes. Yeah, right, and I'm not having cravings, but I'm sitting here eating jello and onions. Al, <laughs> read my lips. No, I'm pregnant. <laughs> How do you get tough there? Well, what, what could be tougher than to play a pregnant woman? All right, what could be tougher is something to help cure this planet. And I just want to tell you, because I talked about this, about the, the trouble with the ozone hole last time I was on the show, and the Rick D show. What the California done? Coastal Air Quality Management Commission has passed a bill that all... The Riverside County, San Bernardino, Los Angeles, and Orange County, now in January 1992, you, it's a law. You have to recycle Freon, folks. You have to. So yeah, let's start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. This is the follow-up. You were here last time. That's Anybody right. see? And I'm an Dean Stockman here. Environmental. You are a rabid saver of the ozone layer. Me so and my wife, Joy, all over the country and a lot right of other now. people. That's right. The, uh, a rule was passed. Well, obviously, you have a seven-year-old daughter. Obviously... Yeah. The child will grow up confused. We know that now. All right. Where do we live? You know, I, yeah. what, what, like when you say, oh, I have to go to work, and you have heels on and breasts, and you walk out the door. I mean, what is, how does she, I mean, where, what does she think that you do? I mean. Well, I very rarely, except for the weekends, leave the house that way. Right. So, right, you know. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> well, you know. Um. It's usually the weirdest at school when I'm picking her up or something and uh, and I hear, you know, a l another little kid runs up and says, I saw you on TV last night in the dress. <laughs> and the teachers are looking at me and the other kids, you know, they don't they don't understand if they right, haven't right. seen it, the young kids. I don't understand. I'm an adult. <laughs> so my daughter says, oh, what, are you a woman this week? Are you uh, are you an old black man this week? And, but because she's so young, she accepts it right, in, in a right. wonderful way, which is really. So is there really anything that, you, that you'd like to play you haven't? I want to play a baby. I want to be a baby in a, like a crib for a week, you know, and have like big hands come down and reach in and pick me up. And, and I want to, they're talking about making me a dog next year. <laughs> and I'll, with my luck, I'll end up like a chihuahua or something, you know, in a, in a, <laughs> in a pen. You know, I'm going to have the state take your child away. <laughs> and have a home where the child can stay. This week, I'm a dog. This yeah, week, I, yeah. But you do your own stunts in the show, too, right? I, well, when you I, have I do a lot of them, yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a great stunt coordinator, Diamond Farnsworth, and he makes sure I don't... What's his name? I don't get, Diamond Farnsworth. <laughs> no, that sounds like a stunt coordinator. Yeah. His dad is Richard Farnsworth, the actor. Oh, the sure. Act, the actor. Oh, oh, the actor. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. He's a famous actor murderer. Oh, no. Well, that sounds like a stunt man name. Yeah. Diamond. Diamond. Yeah. Diamond. Diamond. Yeah. yeah, so he, he takes good care of me, and he doubles me. And have doubles. you ever been injured in a stunt? When you fall over on your breasts or something? Actually... <laughs> You, I don't know. Uh, no, actually, I have never gotten hurt on the show doing stunts. Uh, this year, I dislocated my foot uh, falling downstairs in the dark while, when I was supposed to be climbing a mountain carrying a woman up on my back, uh, which was pretty stupid. And then uh, we did right near the end of the year. You know, at the end of the year, you start getting nervous because you've I'm been well all now. year. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're nervous. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, I was doing a scene where I was being... I was handcuffed to a woman. Oh, this is never going to get very better, is it? Uh, where do I go with this? You're handcuffed I was handcuffed to a woman, woman, and she was pulling me, and I was being slammed into a telephone booth. 
and we rehearsed it several times. It was right after I leaped in, and I didn't know right, where I was. Right, and all right. of a sudden, I'm, you know. And then they came and put the prop gun on me, which I hadn't rehearsed with. And we did it. And the gun was right underneath my rib. And that, of course, hit first. And this rubber gun just about broke my ribs. A rubber you, gun broke you ever, your... Well, as a woman, your skin is soft. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fascinating show. And you certainly get a lot of credit. If this thing goes five years, you're going to be dead. Yeah. You'll be doing Geraldo as a transvestite hooker or something. <laughs> Oh, no, you do a great job. I think you do a great job. I'm good, Stephen. Hi there, all you fans out there. This is Richard Hurd, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. All right, everyone, we're back, and we're going to be throwing to the interview now with Ann Walker. Ann Walker grew up in Houston, Texas. She attended Stephen F. Austin High School and was a member of the famed Scottish Brigade drill team. She started her acting career in Houston, appearing in many small theater productions that made up the theater community of Houston in the late 1960s and early 70s, and culminating with the Alley Theater's 25th anniversary production of Camino Real by Tennessee Williams, directed by the legendary Nina Vance. After that, she went to New York City to study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, then to Los Angeles in 1974 to continue the pursuit of her dream. In April of 2001, she completed the 10-month Los Angeles run of Del Shore's Southern Baptist Sissies. Her portrayal of Odette Annette Barnett garnered her a Robbie Award, a Maddie Award, as well as the prestigious Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Award and a nomination from her peers for the Ovation Award. Los Angeles theater goers have enjoyed her in other award-winning productions such as Tyler Hansen's Ballad, for which she received a Drama Logue Award and the Robbie Award for Best Actress in Drama, Rain, Best Wishes, How the Other Half Loves, Hysterical Blindness, Opera Comique, Steel Magnolias, The Glass Menagerie, Daughters of the Lone Star by Del Shores. But her biggest joy in her theatrical career came in 1996 with Dell's other big comedy hit, Sorted Lives, in which Anne originated the enduring and beloved LaVonda Dupree, a role she reprised in the award-winning film in 2000. Sorted Lives played to delighted audiences in many cities around the United States and Canada, but the phenomenon that occurred in Palm Springs, California, astounded everyone. The movie played for an extraordinary three years in Palm Springs. In April of 2002, the mayor proclaimed two days as Sorted Lives Day. This wild Texas comedy has a following that crosses all groups of people, gay, straight, young, and old. In 2006, Sorted Lives started its U.S. tour, playing to sold-out houses in six cities. Some of Anne's other films include Father of the Bride 2, The Fanatics, It Takes Two, Soul Man, and The Jagged Edge, to name a few. Her TV appearances have included The Sweet Life, Providence, Arliss, Passions, State of Grace, Las Vegas, Sex, Love, and Secrets, and Mad TV, and other installments of The Ruddles with Eric Idle. Quantum Leap fans will know Ann Walker best from her role as Leona in the episode Eight and a Half Months. I looked you up a little bit online. You seem like a really cool person. Uh, uh, I like your Facebook, and I, I saw some of those uh, shows you did. You have on uh, YouTube, you have your own show. That's pretty cool. 
Well, I did. I, I gave that up right after the election uh, 2016. I um, I co-owned the radio station. It was an internet radio station. It's still going, but I sold after a couple of years, and then they couldn't pay me the last 10000 So mm. I said, well, I'll just do my show for a couple of more years, yeah. which I did. And then after the election, the air had been sort of let out of me. And I'm such a vocal person about politics and about LGBT topics, which was what my show was about. Um, and I thought, you know, there are so many other people that have greater voices than me, uh, even though I love my show. And I had like 20,000 probably listeners uh, a week and um, or a month. I think it was a month. But uh, it was it was a great time. I did it for about five, six years. Yeah, I, I felt the same after the election. Shock and then just disappointment. And yeah. then like, uh, yeah. I, I don't think uh, many of us still believe it yet. <laughs> well, that's true. It, it was very hard for me to reconcile. And now that all this stuff has come out, all I'd be doing on the air would be screaming and hollering, you know. <laughs> And cursing because we could we we could use salty language on the the internet radio station. That's the best thing about the internet. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. But uh, yeah, I've still been acting, and you know, whatever I get to do is always a real blessing and an honor. You know. Uh, when I heard I was getting the chance to speak with you, I was like, oh, that's awesome, because you have that that monologue when you're freaking out in Quantum Leap about your hair being purple. Yes, yes, indeed. That was just great. I love that. But before that, I checked out your website, and I love that your gallery shows pictures throughout your whole life. So it made me interested yeah. in your life. You seem like you <laughs> lived a very interesting life. Tell me uh, about when you were younger and uh what inspired you to get into acting and the entertainment business? I was about nine years old. My family, we were always at the movies. I would go to the movies on Saturday with my brother and sister. They were younger and I would be in charge of them all day long. We would be dropped off at 10 and my mother would pick us up at five and uh, we'd get a bag of burgers and uh, we'd eat and stay all day because it was fun. And I just was mesmerized by the things I saw, you know, and I thought, how could, how do those people get to do that? You know, I want to do that. And I didn't really realize what I was wanting, you know, but as I got older, I had never lost that want to do it. And uh, so I got involved in school, you know, and acting and all the interscholastic league stuff and went to meets and stuff and, you know, just sort of carried it through. And it, it just, it made my heart happy, you know, uh, th whatever bad was going on, you know, as far as, uh, you know, some kind of bullying or whatever, you know, it didn't matter. Cause I was an actor. <laughs> At least mm -hmm. I considered myself that my father, they didn't want to send me to New York when I graduated from high school. Daddy wanted me to be, either um, had wanted me to be a secretary, but that was the biggest ambition. And then the big ambition was to have my own beauty shop and go to beauty school and have my own beauty shop. Well, I went through beauty school, but I knew halfway through that was not my calling, but I finished and I got my license. I worked for three weeks as a hairdresser. 
and then got involved in um, all kinds of, of just working, you know, My, mainly uh, service representatives for the telephone company and for oil company. And But I started doing community theater in Houston, Texas. And I got to be a big fish in a little pond there. And uh, so about, I don't know, 1974, my husband uh, at the time, we decided to move to California, either New York or California, but we decided on California because we could drive and it'd be more like Texas, you know, big malls and grocery stores. And and I had studied at the American Academy in New York, so I love New York, but just for all convenience sake, we moved to California. And I got involved and started in an acting class here. And three months later, I came up pregnant. And then I had twins the following year after we got here. So that put a little bit of a a cap on my life for about five years. But I started teaching acting at a little community theater near my house. And I just loved it. I loved everything about it. And it just, again, I did the plays and things during that time, but I didn't really pursue getting an agent and really, you know, becoming a professional, even though I was in the unions already because of my work in Texas. One thing led to another, you know, you you do a play, you get an agent, and then you get another agent who's better. And so I just started on the route. And I'm not a big household name, but you know, you you work and you got I got a pension, you know, after my 22 years of working and I've just never I've just been so blessed to be able to not know anybody, not have a leg up for anything and just by my own sheer determination kept on going, kept on pursuing. Perseverance is the big name of the game with actors, I think. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of rejection? Uh, a lot of, a lot of. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, one time I I had the opportunity to get this new agent who was really a lot better than any I'd ever had, and it was Thanksgiving week, and she had seen a play that I did. I played Sadie Thompson in Rain at that same little community theater. It was an equity waiver theater, not just community. Mm. I mean, professional actors. Mm -hmm. And she just wanted me in the worst way. And so I agreed. And she said, well, we'll sign the contracts on Friday. Well, Friday was the day after Thanksgiving. And I thought, well, okay, we made a mistake and they were closed. And so first thing Monday, I called and asked them when, I should come in. Well, we've decided to go another way. Hmm. Go another fucking way? No. (laughs) So I took to my bed for about three days. I used to really take to my bed. Hmm. And uh, because it was so disappointing because you work and you work and you work. And you just hope somebody pays attention. And when they do, and then it doesn't work out, it just, but you go on, you know. You get your butt up out of bed and you keep going to classes and you keep going to auditions and, and, but it just happens, you know, then a life comes, you know, you, you lead a life 
which is so exciting. You seem to be uh, working steady since it says here in 1981 uh, in television and film. What are some of the roles that stick out for you? Well, of course, Quantum Leap. That was such a fun thing. I, I still remember that as being one of my favorite jobs that I've ever had, mostly because of all the people I got to work with. Awesome. I heard it was a good set from a lot of people. Yeah, it was. James Whitmore. He was terrific. I mean, he had a fun and very, you know, adept set of people working. Um, but then I started doing plays that got a lot of attention here in town, you know. And then, well, I guess not until like 1995 when I met Del Shores. He had seen me in another play. And he wrote Sorted Lives. And I got to do Sorted Lives, the play, in 95. And then in 2000, we did a movie of that play. And I got known as this character, this, you know, Lavanda. And it just took off. Then we did a tour, a six-city tour, because we were going to do a TV series of it. We did the TV series in 2007 uh, and 08, and then it premiered, I think, in 9, 2009, and that was with Rue McClanahan. I think, to me, that was probably the best time, because I was in all 12 episodes and with her, and it was just, I can't even say how many, how great it was. I mean, the whole group, a whole bunch of us from the original play and movie it was like old home week you know we mm. all knew each other and it was just so much fun and uh then we did another movie last year of the last one in the series the last one in this sort of trilogy thing and um and still the audiences we have a built-in audience that's really why i chose to do politics and lgbt uh, topics when I did my radio show because I was such an ally of the of the community that it was just I, I knew I'd have a built-in fan base you know and people would be tuning in but there's been so many you know so many so long ago mm. but like I say I remember quantum more than anything because I love Scott Bakula. How did you uh, get the part, uh, you know, hear about the role? And uh, tell me about the audition process and uh, also, of course, working on Quantum Leap. That seems exciting. Well, my agents, you know, they, they always are the ones. And you, you go on a lot, a lot of auditions. And that just happened to be one. And then I was so excited I got the job. And, well, you just, you know, go in and you do the best you can. And you hope that you're the one they want. They've got such a big pool of actors, you know, uh, that it, <laughs> I'm always surprised when I get something. Mm. Although m sometimes there's just that one audition or that one part that you think, who could they possibly get but me? <laughs> I don't know how they could get anybody else. So that was one that I, I was really happy to, happy to book. You know, it's just your agents. They, they, they're the ones that normally get the call and um, they submit you. And then they, people, the casting people look 
at the uh, at your picture and see what you've done, and that's when you get it. What do you remember about the set in that day filming? Was it only one day? Yeah, yeah, it was just one day. Um, well, there were a couple of my friends on that shoot. Lana Schwab, um, she played the the little blonde girl who was the owner of the beauty shop. Right, she's awesome too. Yeah, in that episode. Yeah. And, uh, but I just remember it being so much fun. That little girl who played uh, the one that was pregnant, Mm -hmm. she was around, but then Scott was there and it was just a fun, busy, you know, we were all very committed to the work and doing that work. And James was wonderful. And I don't know, I, I, it's been since the eighties, I think. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. (laughs) Uh, you you really had great chemistry in that scene with uh, Lana Schwab, so that yeah. that makes sense that you were yeah. friends. So uh, yeah, w- uh, was that just happenstance that you happened to work together? Or? Yeah, just happenstance. We didn't know we were working together until we got there that day. Oh, awesome. Tell me about the purple hair. Well, it was a wig, obviously, and that you know it was just this fun thing. Uh, being a hairdresser, I can understand how that could happen mm. when you. Uh, they tell you you never get a perm when you get color on your hair mm-hmm. the same day. You have to wait a few days, and, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so she's just wild. What do you, what do you remember about uh, working with Dean and Scott? Dean, I think was there. Wasn't he in our episode? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, I didn't have in much interaction with Dean, but. Scott was the one that was really, you know, in the scene with us. So it, I don't know, everybody, he just, they just all treated everybody with very much respect and, and, uh, appreciation for who you were as an actor. You know, you were an actor, so you, you had great respect and, and you gave respect and you were committed to the work. Uh, what was it like playing the, I guess you're the main antagonist in the episode because you're the one like trying to state and enforce the like social standards at the time and telling the character yeah. Dottie that she needs to stop helping this girl because she's young and unwed and pregnant. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I was going off the fact that my hair was ruined mm-hmm. more than, you know, I was saying those words that mm-hmm. conveyed the fact that I wasn't in liking the fact that she was, uh, you know, letting this young girl work there. But I used my anger. My anger was sort of, and my frustration was uh, because of my hair, mostly. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. You can always pick something. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pick what you're saying so much as the underlying kind of impetus to to become enraged. Mm. Because what woman wouldn't be enraged about your hair. <laughs> now they're dyeing their hair purple on purpose. <laughs> oh, uh, I just remember we had fun and it was not a hard day at all. That's good. Uh, was that on a set or was that on location? I think we were on a set. Yeah, I think they had made us a set, but I don't think we were in on a location. Okay. But, um, geez, I can't remember, kid. <laughs> it was what, 30 years ago now almost? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it's 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 hard for anybody to remember that long ago, especially yeah. you know, a little bit here and there. Uh, you've been on so many shows that are just like 
in the American pop culture that everybody has watched at some point. Some that stick out for me is like Matt Locke and Murder, She Wrote, and a show I used to watch when I was a kid, Amazing Stories. Do you remember working on Amazing Stories? Yes, I do remember that. Um, I'm trying to recall the story. It was uh, called The Pumpkin Competition. But I can't remember who I was or what I did. You said you played Ma. <laughs> hmm. well, again, that you was. You could hang me up by my thumbs, <laughs> and I couldn't tell you. That was in '86. So Go- going back to Sorted Lives, that seemed to be a really popular series, and you said you had a big following on that. I noticed uh, you did a uh, "It Gets Better" video, and uh, you I did, yeah, during that time, and you gave out your personal email address. Did that ever? Did anybody ever reach out well, to you? Well, I also I gave out my cell phone number. Wow. Well, you know, that's an important cause if somebody needs to talk to somebody and they have no yeah, one. Yeah, you know? it is. And But I have regretted it a few times. <laughs> oh, yeah. Somebody, they, some one guy just will not lose my number. Mm. And But he's so dear and he's just lonely, you know, mm-hmm. and I just, I can't be mean to him. Yeah. You said you, uh, not, you said you were bullied uh, when you were younger too. Uh is that one of the reasons that you kind of took up that cause? I think anybody that has ever felt it didn't last very long. It was in elementary school, but um, I think anybody who gets bullied at any point, you never, ever forget that feeling that it made you have. You know, you just wanted to sit down and cry or hide and and it takes away your self-worth. So I, I think that anybody who, who's ever experienced it, you hope that they take up that cause and help people out. I have grandchildren now, and I talk to them quite a bit about it. They're kids in elementary. Oh, wow. So uh, the twins had kids themselves. Yes, they did. Yes, I have two uh, beautiful women that I get to call my daughters, and one has a couple of kids. She's a doctor, and my other daughter is an occupational therapist. Do your grandkids ever see you on TV and say, oh, that's Grandma? (laughs) I can't wait to show them all my sorted live stuff, but they're going to have to get a little older before we do. I was on iZombie uh, a week or two ago. I want to show them just the beginning because iZombie gets a little crazy yeah. <laughs> uh, toward that whole show. But I come, my part's on at the beginning. And I got to go to Canada to shoot it. And they, I had special effects makeup made. I got to go twice to Canada. Oh, wow. That was a real treat. That was a real treat. Uh, was that a good experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That whole company was, they, they just made you feel like a queen. You know, it's first class everything and beautiful scenery and wonderful town, a great hotel. It was really a top-notch kind of experience. I do a lot. I have I have great knowledge of the disparity between some shows and other shows. Do you have more good experiences than bad experiences? And does, does oh, yeah. that way? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just to be working, acting is what I love to do. Uh, in fact, I think Spencer Tracy said, they don't pay me to act. I do that for free. They pay me to wait. (laughs) (laughs) Hurry up and wait, right? Yeah, that's right. I took a a golf ball, 
the way they killed me was a golf ball gun. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have, my not, eye. I, I have not seen so that episode had, yet, so I'm excited to get there. Yeah. Well, you can, um, my, my website, I don't think that's been put up yet. Okay. But my quantum leap, my quantum leap is on, on my page. I've got a couple of demos. Reels. Did you ever get recognized for your uh, quantum leap or? No, no, because I look so different. Mm. What do you, you get know, recognized for the most, do you think? Oh, Sorted Live, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I was at an awards uh, dinner for um, Family Equality Council last Saturday night. And I mean, that's a room full of gay men and women. Mm-hmm. So they all recognized me, you know, <laughs> it was it was great. That's a great community to uh, have fans in because uh, it is. They appreciate you, exactly. and they yeah. are so much fun to be with. Um, when we were on the road last year for the movie of a very sordid wedding, we went to like twelve or fifteen cities and um, just traveled everywhere. And it was the most fun I've ever had publicizing a movie. For somebody who's not familiar with the franchise, could you tell us a little bit about it? And I, I noticed it has uh, Olivia Newton-John in it, and like you mentioned, Rue McClanahan. That's pretty cool. Well, the first movie, we had Delta Burke, Bo Bridges, Bonnie Bedelia, and Olivia Newton-John. And I'm telling you, they, it was just fabulous. I mean, that hit... Like a ton of bricks, it was funny yet poignant, and it spoke to the human condition of what people have to go through uh, who are gay, you know, who they get beat up. And I mean, it's a, a very funny yet brings tears, mm. you know, mm. and uh, that one, that was, uh, and then we did the series when Delta didn't come back. And Bo didn't come back, but we had Rue McClanahan and Caroline Ray in the series. And then uh, last year's movie, we lost Rue, but, you know, in I think 2011, something like that. And that was a blow to everybody. Yeah. Oh, and um, uh, Leslie Jordan, he's that little short dude. Mm-hmm. He does a lot, a lot of stuff. He won an Emmy for Will and Grace, and he's just been everywhere. Yeah, very funny guy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he plays my brother. Mm. And I think that it made such a great statement, you know, because so many people came up to us, so many fans have said, I used this movie to come out to my family. And right now they're using Love, Simon. Right, yeah. In the Somebody said, yeah. you know, that they're using Love, Simon to come out to their parents. It's it's important that people see these things and, and know that it's normal and it's okay to be who you are. Exactly, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So I think that's been one of the major really good things that have come out of not only just me being able to be an actress, but to have something to stand for. mm you know, to take a stand. Hmm. What's uh, Leslie Jordan like? Uh, did you work with him much in it? I, I, I'm a fan of his from <laughs> a bunch of stuff, from, but uh, he did a show called Con Man not too long ago, and that, that was funny. Uh-huh. I haven't hmm. seen that. Uh, but yes, I've known Leslie. 
I worked with Leslie on his first one one man show called Hysterical Blindness and Other Southern Tragedies That Have Plagued My Life Thus Far. <laughs> it's a long title. It's, it's funny though. And he he had a Baptist choir who we also uh, would come and do skits with him during the show. I played one of his twin sisters. My girlfriend, Noreen, she and I are about the same size. We tower over him. And his real twin sisters are really shorter than he is, if you can be shorter than him. (laughs) (laughs) But um, he's a funny, 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 funny guy. But, you know, along with all that humor that he puts up in front of him he's very he's very um introspective Mm. and not all the time funny you Mm. know i because i've known him for 30 years or 25 i've been around him a lot and i know the good parts and the bad parts Mm. and it's mostly good Mm. but he's had his struggles with life you Mm. know yeah. Like everybody. Mm, everybody, yeah. Uh, does, do you have a lot of friends in the business, or is that not easy to do? No, I have. A, I mean, all my friends are in the business. I'm trying to think. I've got maybe one or two that I've known since high school that I'm still friends with that aren't in the business. They don't live out here, but I keep in touch with them. You were in Father of the Bride, part two? Yeah. What was that like, yeah. working with those guys? Well, let's see. How am I going to explain this? (laughs) Um, He and Diane Keaton, Mm -hmm. you know, Steve Martin and Diane Keaton, they sort of keep to themselves. You know, they don't invite, um, when you're working on the set, that's, it's great. But off the set, it's as if, you know, you don't really, who you're nobody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how other, other, any other way to put that. But when you're on the set, you're reacting and you're interacting and reacting. And, you know, you, you work the, the, the time. And I had two scenes with them. But, darling, when I tell you, Martin Short is the probably one of the best people I've ever worked with. Wow. Nicest anyway. Mm. He interacts, he where you you're in the makeup trailer, uh in there with him, he's cracking jokes, he's asking you things about yourself. You know, I mean he was just a really personable guy. Mm. That's awesome. But, he seems like a kind person. Mm, yeah, he is. And BD Wong was nice too. Do you, do you have any advice uh, with such a, a long career that you've had? Uh, do you have any advice for young people maybe wanting to get into the business? Should they or shouldn't they? And what's the best way about going to do with that? I would never say they shouldn't. I would always say if you feel like that it's a calling for you, if it's a because I've often said it's like a burning coal that lives down in the pit of your stomach. You can't do anything about it and you will feel like you've missed out on life if you don't pursue it but if you can find something else that you're as passionate about i say do it because it it, unless you're willing to continue on i was very lucky 
I had two husbands and uh, both really good, you know, who encouraged me. My first husband, if had it not been for him, you know, I wouldn't have uh, been able to pursue it. He encouraged me and made sure he worked for IBM uh, and uh, he just thought I hung the moon. And I, I'm still, I still love him and we're still friends and he's remarried. I had remarried, but my husband passed away, uh, 13 years ago. And, um, but we were all really good friends and we'd spend Christmas Eves together with our kids and it was, uh, was one big happy family, you know, Mm. and my husband was a terrific guy and. Um, we, we led quite a big life because he was, a uh, he worked more than I did. His name was Steve Suskind and he was a very important person in the voiceover field out here, huh. out in Los Angeles. So, uh, was, our best friend was, uh, Don LaFontaine and his wife, Don, you know, sort of invented the voiceover business. So we were very, I mean, we, we had such a big life. We had to buy a little limo, you know, we <laughs> bought a stretch limousine that we hired drivers for. We had maybe six or eight drivers and you'd call one and you were going out to dinner and you wanted to drink. And mm. so you just hire a driver. The days before Uber. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Isn't Uber the best thing in the world? It's it's great. You can leave your car uh, if you had uh, if you just wanted to drink and you were out and just go back the next day yeah. and get it. Yep, it's great. Saves and I went Saturday night. I had to go up to Universal City Plaza mm. for this award ceremony, and I took an Uber there and an Uber back. <laughs> it's pretty great. It is. Yep, it's all for the price of gas, pretty much. It's not mm-hmm. so bad. Yeah. Uh, going back to Quantum Leap, um, yeah. what's it like being part of a series that um, has so many fans? And, and it's one of the episodes that I think this one, eight and a half months, that people think of when they think of Quantum Leap. Like they, they have a couple like pictures in their head, I think all of like pop culture does, of uh, like Sam in a Carmen Miranda outfit and then him being pregnant walking on the street, you know. Uh, yeah. What's it like being part of that history? Well, it's it. There's nothing like pop culture and, and people, uh, especially with quantum leap, they do pick out certain episodes that get watched a whole lot of times. Like, like golden girls. I have friends who play golden girls on a loop in their garage. (laughs) Uh, it's also a workshop, but anyway, Mm. um, and, and designing women. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had an episode of designing women that people really recognize, you know, Mm -hmm. It was the the little boat child, the little Vietnamese boat child. Ah, um, yeah. Yes, it's wonderful being recognized for that, and it's wonderful to have those kind of shows. I can't. I have not ever been on a Will and Grace. There's and still time. I, There's still time. <laughs> yes, thank God they've got two more seasons. Yeah, um, that's but so I want to be on Will and Grace. I think you might. Why not? Yeah, you, I can't wait to see you on there. That'd be great. Well, uh, you know, my age is is uh, got a little something. Yeah, they, they can always find me, a part for you. 
I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. I yeah. saw this woman that I know. I see her on uh, auditions a lot. She has red hair. I have red hair, and we're about the same size and same, you know, character. And uh, she was on Will and Grace a couple of weeks ago, and said not a word. <laughs> Didn't say a word. It's... And I thought I don't want to go on there and not say anything. Yeah, that's true. But so anyway. Mm. It, at, at least you got a couple more seasons to so far. Yeah. You never know. They might yeah. get more, right? Yeah. So that's yeah, a good show. You never know. But, you know, it's fun to talk about a career. You know, my mine has been up and down and down and up and and it is. I what you what I was gonna say too is that peaks and valleys. Gotta always remember just in life there are peaks and valleys in a career. You you think you're not going to get anything. You think you'll never work again. And then all of a sudden you get something like assorted lives that makes your life continue for another 10 or 15 years. Um, and people start recognizing you and you get invited places and you get a little notoriety. I mean, I've done other shows for Dell Shores. Southern Baptist Sissies was one that I did with Leslie. And they made a, they actually filmed it. There's a film of it too. It's a filmed stage play, except that it's not just a one dimensional, you know, they, they had cameras and three cameras mm. and all this kind of stuff. And that was a really a wonderful LGBT kind of story. Mm. Had four boys from the South who were raised in the Baptist church and we see them from four, you know, as they grow up, they're in the, um, the church and one kills himself. One becomes a drag queen and one is a writer and one suppresses his emotions and decides to marry a woman, but they all grew up together and you see their lives. But then Leslie and I, played the comic relief except we were pretty I was a um, an old alcoholic woman who had been mean to her brother who was gay and she was looking for him in all these gay bars and Leslie played this aging uh, homosexual man and we just sat there and got drunk and talked about our lives but it's so damn funny but in the movie version Dale Dickey, she's fabulous. I mean, she played my part in the movie, but I got to play uh, another part. Oh. Dale's very loyal to everybody. Awesome. That, that sounds very intriguing. It looks like it's available on Amazon Prime. Yeah, you, you would enjoy it. Okay, I'll you check really that would. out. I don't know yeah. if you're gay or not, but... No, not currently. Even if you're not gay, you will like this movie. Yeah, but I, I enjoy the community and have a lot of friends, so... I see. Yeah, Albie. Okay. Well, I had a great time speaking with you today. You you are a really cool person and really nice to talk to, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it very, very much. You're a doll. And thanks for finding me. Hayden, Amanda, do you have any trivia for us today? Hey, Albie. Uh, 
I do have quite a lot of trivia. Um, I cannot thank Matt Dale enough for Beyond the Mirror Image because I've been so busy I haven't had a lot of time to write any myself, but it's all listed in front of me here. Plagiarism. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a bit of plagiarism going on, but at least I referenced it. <laughs> <laughs> so then, it, then it's okay, I think, right? Yeah, I think if we put a reference in, it's okay, as long as I put in, in quotation marks and with the, the in-text citations and the reference list in alphabetical order and all that fun stuff. I think it's okay because he's like a friend of the podcast now, I would say. Yeah. Um, also, before we start, I really have to apologize to Zoe and also to all the listeners for the recap. It was incredibly difficult to write because of so much going on in the story that wasn't played out on the screen. So the number of times I had to swap around Sam and Billy Jean so that uh, the way that you can understand what's going on is anything that's happening in the universe at that point in time um, i'd be using billy jean but anything that was happening on the screen i'd have to say sam and some of the pronouns kind of want to kill you a little bit reading that (laughs) i've gone cross-eyed and and some of the pronouns were ridiculous like where i had to write uh that uh bob was telling sam he'd have to marry the father of his baby and stuff like that so (laughs) (laughs) yeah and all those big words you kept using alvi knows i stumbled over them quite a lot (laughs) So, yes, my apologies. Cool. I really had to do the best I can to make sure both the story and the plot were taken care of. You two are amazing. No worries there. <laughs> okay. Well, oh, as, for, as for a little bit of trivia, um, first of all, getting to the start of this episode, after Runaways broadcast in January and a repeat of Another Mother a week later, Quantum Leap was taken off the air seemingly for good before a planned repeat of The Colour of Truth could take place. And this is a fantastic showing of what the fans can actually do, because over the following weeks, 50,000 letters from concerned fans flooded the office of NBC's president, Warren Littlefield. The response was a humorous trailer acknowledging the decision to pull Quantum Leap was wrong. I think Albie might have played this a little bit earlier on in the show. Uh, And a return not only of the show itself after a two-month break, but also to its old time slot of Wednesdays, where it had been the most successful. And as a thank you to fans, on the 25th of February in 1991, a screening took place at Universal Studios' Hitchcock Theatre of this episode um, in an unfinished form, followed by a Q&A. And so some of the trivia we're getting actually comes from that Q&A. Awesome. <laughs> Very yeah, cool. so very interesting, and hopefully we can get the people power together and get Quantum Leap back in some form at some point soon, too. It's happened once before. It's all happened before, and it'll all happen again. Yeah, history never repeats except when it does. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, some more production uh. notes. Quantum Leap does not generally accept specialist scripts, in other words, those sent unsolicited from well-meaning fans, to avoid potential legal action. And they would always return any mail unopened and unread. So this led to would-be writers coming up with very inventive methods to slip in unnoticed. A classic example of this happened during around the time that this episode was being made. After Deborah Pratt completed the script, Tommy Thompson actually got what's called a balloonogram in his office one day. It was apparently very beautiful and it had a big balloon that said, it's a boy, 
and congratulations. And Tommy Thompson was very confused because his wife wasn't pregnant. He didn't think it could possibly be for him. <laughs> but there was the right address and everything and it had this nice gift attached to it. So he opened it and, uh-oh, it was a script about Sam being <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> and Deborah had already written the episode. And, uh, yeah, Tommy had to run out of the room and pretend he'd never seen it and yelled for someone to come in and take it away because if they'd found out that it had been even opened, let alone read, then as a producer he would have been dead. It was a very, very touchy situation. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, the episode itself, eight and a half months, was being written back as far as November 1990. Uh, this is actually the very first time in the series that we get confirmation, even though it's been implied many times before, that it's actually Sam's body that leaps and he, it's not just his soul inhabiting someone else's body. They actually say it's the aura of Billie Jean or the Lee P and the aura of her being pregnant, which uh, is making Sam look like that to everyone else. And it's not actually her body there. It's Sam's. Um, so, yep, no more confusion. This is probably the best explanation we get throughout the whole series. And it's canon unlike a lot of what happens in the novels. I think some people are still confused because it goes back and forth. I don't think there's a strict rule that they stuck with, but definitely this is a rule, but do they stick with it in the future? That'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I was going to say it's actually funny that this episode is the one where they do actually spell it out because this episode would actually be the one which would imply it's the other way around because we've got to actually think about what happens to the baby. So mm -hmm. obviously Sam can't be carrying it because he's a man. And there'd be nowhere for the fetus to gestate. I'm reminded a bit of Monty Python there, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we also find out that the baby wasn't in Billie Jean either. So what I have as my head canon is because Al stated that Al uh, that it takes a bit of time for a leap to happen. It might be instantaneous to Sam, but it actually does take time that uh, Sam probably goes to a limbo state during, um, during in between his leaps where he can recuperate and heal if he's been injured. And uh, that's probably what I think's happened to the baby as well. It's ended up in the safety of limbo. Mm. Yeah, that makes more sense than the, the baby just randomly switching places. Yeah. But uh, there's many different interpretations and the wording that they use actually isn't all that great. They say the baby disappeared from Billie Jean's womb. So does that mean it was there and then and then leapt? Or does that mean that they just assumed it was there and that when they checked, they actually found she was empty? It's too ambiguous. There's a lot mm -hmm. of weird stuff going on. It might involve Q from Star Trek The Next Generation, John DeLancey. <laughs> he would be pleased to know he's still being blamed for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's the only explanation I can think of. Uh, <laughs> but also something to do with the science and mechanics of quantum leaping. This is also the first episode in the series where it's kind of explicitly shown that Sam is mind merging or psycho synergizing with the Lee Pete because he's mm -hmm. receiving a lot of the pregnancy symptoms and pain that uh, Billie Jean's going through. Including uh, the and, yeah, 
So there was the nausea, there was the mood swings, there was the hot flushes, there was the constantly needing to relieve your bladder, there was the feeling the baby kicking, there was obviously the labour pains, there was the ridiculous cravings of jello and onions. So Pretty much sounds like my daily life except for the um, kicking. (laughs) (laughs) I'll kick you if you want, Albie. Aw, thank you, Hayden. (laughs) It's the best offer I you got like all week. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try it this week. I'm excited. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't all wait. Right. Well, I can wait, but I'm, I'm not going to wait. <laughs> I won't tell Dean if you won't. <laughs> have, you, have you tried it? Have you guys tried it? I think that's a new challenge. Jello and onions. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure that I would be throwing up in five seconds. Not going to lie. Yeah. Don't like onions? Maybe we can make I- this a new meme. And everyone can donate like they did with the ice bucket challenge. And we can put it towards either finding the missing mirror image footage or towards the new movie. Hmm. Interesting. I like that idea. It, uh, we need to think about some of it, but it's a good idea. But it's definitely a good idea for a challenge. It is a good idea for a challenge. I will not be participating. Mm. I, I have to because that's what I do. I eat for fun, you know, so. <laughs> It'll be interesting. Yeah. I eat for fun too, just not jello or onions. Oh. I like neither. Maybe this is what we need so that we don't eat for fun. Ah, <laughs> yes. The new diet craze. According to Matt Dale, though, it's pretty tasty. So now yeah. I'm intrigued. Uh, we'll have to see. Well, I, I think until I see the money, I'm just going to take his word for it. <laughs> I might do it if somebody pays me like $6 billion, but (laughs) you had me at six, but then when you said billion, I was out. (laughs) Although this does really make me wonder because cravings during pregnancy come from some sort of a nutrient deficiency. And usually the craving is for something completely unrelated to that particular nutrient, by the way, which is even weirder. But Mm. what, what deficiency would actually make Billy Jean and Sam crave onions? I don't know the molecular structure of onions enough. (laughs) Oh, I I have heard of some even worse cravings Mm. on um, the Quantum Leap um, Owls Place forum. Um, Some people on the discussion board for this episode were talking about some of the weird cravings that they had. And uh, one person said they were craving clay and ate one of their terracotta pots. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's an actual mental disorder, Yeah, by the way. The pica. I've heard about that. Yeah, pica. Yeah, they might have had a mineral deficiency. I know Serenity, when she was uh, being gestated, she wanted Thanksgiving. It didn't matter what part of Thanksgiving, just Thanksgiving. The pie, (laughs) the turkey, the stuffing, the cranberry, that's all she wanted. Well, you know, that's that's not exactly a yucky need. I, I can understand that <laughs> yeah uh, i want that a couple times a year too so speaking of serenity <laughs> if she'd been a boy would you have named her firefly uh millennium falcon enterprise or malcolm i think awesome. <laughs> now you gotta say like malcolm mcdowell here you go actually now you gotta uh, say malcolm for the middle child actually another reason malcolm is vulcan for serenity Ah, really? that's uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh-huh. very cool. Did not know that. So, so if you do have another child and he's a boy, you name him Malcolm, and then you can just yell out "Serenity, Malcolm!" whenever you want one of them, and they'll exactly they'll, both come. they'll be like, "Dad, we're speaking English or Vulcan." <laughs> By then, I'll forget why they called him. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, I believe we were talking about eight and a half months, weren't we? 
Oh yes. yeah, Quantum Leap. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> this particular episode actually has quite a few guest stars who appear in other episodes of the show as well. James Whitmore mm-hmm. Jr., who played um, Billy Jean's father, Bob. Uh, he was a regular director for the series and actually directed this episode as well. Um, mm-hmm. He also appeared as an uncredited mirror image in Trilogy Part 1 and also as the police captain in Mirror Image. Harold Frizzell was a regular stand-in for Bacula. Must have been like during the mirror scenes and stuff like that where they need another back of the head maybe, I don't know. But uh, he appeared here as an orderly pushing him down the hall into the operating room. And Parley Bayer, who played uh, Dr. Rogers, returned to play Judge Shiner in Trilogy Part 3. And also Anne Haney, who played Cassie, the woman from the adoption agency, uh, she played Grace Beaumont in A Single Drop of Rain. Speaking uh-huh. of, oh, I thought she looked familiar. Speaking of Anne Haney, though, I was so disappointed when I was looking up um, trying to find us interviews because she passed away in the early 2000s. And I really oh wanted to hear from her because she worked on Mrs. Doubtfire. Mm. Mm. Unfortunately, we'll never know unless she's written it down somewhere, somewhere else. Mm. We'll just have to keep Googling. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We will anyway. Keep searching. As I've always said, it's great we've got this podcast so that the people who are still around, we can get their experiences and their life experiences just for posterity's sake. Uh, Dottie's car appears to be the same one that followed Captain Cotter towards the start of So Help Me God. Although the license plate couldn't be made out in the earlier episode, the model and color are the same. Oh, very cool. Uh, usually license plates like those aren't real. They're just uh, what the property master has on the day or wh- whoever's doing the cars. So that wouldn't be an indicator, but could probably could be the same car. I'd say it probably would be. I mean, if they had it, then I as well use it as long as it's not yeah. anachronistic. Yeah. Um, I doubt people are going to take the time like uh, Matt and the rest of us have to actually check and cross-reference them. <laughs> hmm. Well, if Matt says it's probably it, I believe him. No, he, he's done his research, so I'm much further inclined to uh, believe him. <laughs> All right, well, we've got a ton of goofs as well. Immediately after the opening credits, Billie Jean in the mirror is clutching her belly. And then the camera swings around, but Sam is not. Huh. Whoops. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, they seem to be happening a bit, uh, quite a lot, these, um, these kind of mirror errors. I think it's because... If it's just a case where the camera will cut out and go to the mirror, they can actually have the actor or actress do whatever they want and then cut back to the other one. So it's a bit harder to get the the flow right as opposed to if it was something like in What Price Gloria where they take the time to get the choreography exactly right, like when they're putting the lipstick on. Uh, So, yeah. Still probably the best mirror shot, I think, so far. I think mm-hmm. so as well. Cool. That mm-hmm. and the one where um, Sam is with Gloria and in the mirror is um, Samantha and Gloria's twin sister. Right, yeah, that whole episode. Yeah. I think that one was definitely the one they really wanted to, you know, push home. This is something different. Terminator 2 quality. Yeah. All right. Now, after Sam exclaims, I can't have a baby to Al, the shot changes. Originally, Al doesn't have a cigar in his mouth. And then he does. 
holographic cigar, I think. Maybe he wasn't touching it at the time and then they couldn't get the lock on it. Who knows? Al <laughs> uh, refers to the present day as being in 40 years' time, but actually we know it's at least 1996 based on the dates in All Americans, likely 1997. But he's probably just rounding. Yeah, he usually does, yeah. I think. That reminds me of a funny uh, time I had recently. Uh, I was driving along and there was this shepherd and he was having a lot of trouble with his sheep. They were going all over the place. He says, I've got 68 sheep. Will you help, will you help me round them up? So I said, yeah, sure, 70. <laughs> <laughs> it got a laugh. Math humor. (laughs) There's 10 kinds of people in the world those that understand binary and those that don't. (laughs) And I think a man, I think Zoe's in the not understanding. Uh, Uh, Yes. She's very very brilliant. uh, Yeah, me plus math equals never. All right. Uh, When Sam refuses to sign the adoption papers, he starts justifying his decision and waves his hand around in front of his mouth for several shots. Um, But each time the camera angle changes, his hands are making very different motions. So, again, difficulties in editing, I think. That would almost be impossible unless it was very well choreographed. But even then, then you have to have an editor on board with the same thing. So who knows? Yeah. I always um, just thought that that was because he was eating raw uh, radishes at the time, which I thought was <laughs> weird. Like a fraggle. <laughs> I can make up words too, you festizio. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, I didn't hear that wrong. That's not a word. <laughs> really, Jim Henson, Fraggle Rock? Come on, they eat radishes. Or were they they the doozers that ate the radishes? I managed to miss that movie somehow. You built the structures and then the the fraggles ate the doozer structures built out of radishes. I would have loved loved to have seen Kermit the Frog's movie, Quantum Leapfrog. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Stand up in in Australia if anybody – tip your waitress. He's going to be okay. Yeah. When Sam goes into labor, Dottie calls Keita, who is in a bar listening to a song that will not be released until 1956. So, a slight anachronism there. Ah, did not know that. Yeah. Also, a another problem with Sam reflecting. Sam reflects in the large ceiling mirror in the final scene. Why would they put a ceiling mirror into a um, set when they know the yeah. person's not supposed to reflect? I don't get that. And also, why is there a mirror on the ceiling of a hospital delivery room? That weirded me out. Maybe it's a two-way mirror. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Casting gun. What time is it there, Hayden? Have you been drinking? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if you have been drinking, what have you been drinking? (laughs) And can you put it away? (laughs) I wish I had a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, A couple of problems with uh, some of the ADR. When Keita tells Dottie, feed it to Mama, his mouth says, feed it to them. And also when Al says, well, you're just a girl, his mouth says, guy. 
I think it makes more sense saying you're just a girl, though, because, uh, you know, he's pointing out that, you know, it's two teenagers who have had a bit of fun and then gotten pregnant by accident. So I think the pronouns in this one really don't make a lot of sense when trying to explain this episode. So <laughs> I did notice that while watching it, the guy and girl looped yeah. in. It's just, I don't, it, for me, it was unnecessary because it was more distracting than it didn't really accomplish anything. I think a lot of the pronouns got confused in that episode anyway, just because of the whole context of it. I think a lot of people were confused. <laughs> did we just assume their genders? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that's another Which, show. Um, brings up another good point. I wonder if the baby was a boy or a girl. Hmm. Who knows? Hmm. I think it's kind of implied it's probably a boy because of how yeah. hard it was kicking. But <laughs> And Sam says, oh, boy. And Daddy's like, you know what? I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few times that Sam referred to it as the possibility of it being a girl as well. So Maybe they should have just used they instead of he or she. I don't know. Wouldn't Al know? Maybe not, actually, because it would depend whether or not um, they get a hold of the adoption records and the birth certificate, and that, that might not have been available. Yeah, and they also couldn't get any information out of Billie Jean either. And if they had have been able to do that, like the future Billie Jean. I wish they could have done that, actually. I reckon that would have been a real twist to have. Yeah, but surely yeah, after but she gives birth to the baby, they'd tell her it's a boy or a girl. Oh, yeah, that's Yeah, true. that's what... That's what I was talking about, too. Like, even even if you were giving the baby up for adoption back in those days, they would tell you what the gender of the child was. So you're saying uh, they didn't get the future information from the mother in the future that... They had no way of knowing. Yeah. Cross-eyed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I, I really wish they could have done uh, something like that. I thought it was a really good idea that Sam had. I mean... Based on the time constraints, I know that they wouldn't have been able to, not just from the fact that he was giving birth then anyway, but also from the fact that uh, they only have a 42-minute episode to do it in. And actually, that does remind me of another piece of trivia I missed. There was a cut scene from this episode. Uh, apparently, in the original script, it was going to say, in a little bit more detail, that uh, had... Billy Jean's mother not gotten pregnant, Bob probably would have married Dottie and not her mother. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and I kind of wish they put that in because, I mean, it's kind of implied that Bob and Dottie are close or at least were close, but uh, I think that their relationship should have been a little bit more explored. So, Agreed. That's pretty much all of the trivia and all of the news. Well, thank you, Hayden and Amanda, for joining me for trivia. And news. Thank you for having yeah. us. Yeah, I'll be here for Future Boy. Hopefully in the future or possibly the past, depending on what time zone we're in. Future Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, wasn't she fun? Absolutely. Yeah, that was a great interview. I know we didn't talk about her character when we were talking about the episode, but she was a lot of fun. Yeah, she was a real highlight. Highlight, yeah, definitely one of the most... <laughs> Matt, really? <laughs> Uh, I think you were making a pun there, but she definitely was one what? of the oh, most... <laughs> I wasn't! Not that time! <laughs> highlight? She was getting her hair highlighted oh, and turned purple. I just got it! I'm so dumb! <laughs> I see. She was a highlight. <laughs> she was no tease? <laughs> this, was a, this was a real blowout episode. <laughs> Uh, before this carnage can go on any longer, we are go going to be hearing from Hayden and his new Quantum Deep. 
Papa don't preach. I'm in quantum deep. I've been looking forward to talking about eight and a half months. It's a heartwarming story, and as it's told from the point of view of a man who could never actually know what it's like to be pregnant or to give birth, it's very inventive and entertaining. The implications of the leap are mind-boggling, and it's interesting that while they attempt to explain the technical side of things, it's done so ambiguously, there's still something for us to talk about some 25 years later. This episode gives the best explanation in the entire series of why Sam appears to nearly everyone around him as the person he has replaced. When Billie Jean leapt to the waiting room, she was in full labour, and according to Al, it took every doctor on the crew to stop it. Al and Ziggy were also extremely worried that if Billie Jean gave birth in the waiting room, that the baby would stay in the future. But Sam, who starts experiencing the pregnancy symptoms of mood swings, cravings, and hot flushes, wonders if, when he leapt in and Billie Jean leapt out, whether the baby had stayed and that he was carrying it. Al said it was impossible, that it's Sam's body that's leapt, and it's only the illusion of Billie Jean's physical aura that is surrounding him, making him look pregnant. There you have it, laid out in the audio equivalent of black and white. There should not be any more confusion. Except... (sighs) Why did they have to choose this episode to explain the mechanics of leaping and auras when the circumstances of this leap raise many more questions than answers? All evidence throughout the series so far suggests that Al is correct and that it is Sam's body that leaps and he's surrounded by the aura of the leapy so everyone sees him as that person. For example, he has the strength of a man while in the aura of a woman or a young boy, and he's able to see while he has replaced a blind man. Some future episodes also back this up, such as Sam being able to walk while his host has had both legs amputated, and also Sam being able to father a child. Canonically, there is not any ambiguity on the issue. It is all of Sam's mind, body, and spirit that leaps. I applaud Deborah Pratt for explicitly stating what had been confusing for many viewers. But then, how could the events of eight and a half months have possibly happened? Let's assume that Al was correct, and that the baby did leap with Billie Jean. Then Al and Ziggy have every reason to worry. But it also makes me wonder, since everyone is seeing Billie Jean as Sam, if Billie Jean was to go into labour again in the waiting room, then just who would be able to deliver the baby? It would be impossible for anyone other than Al to see her as herself. So without a visible vagina, how could they possibly be able to guide the baby? I suppose Al could have, and if the writer had decided to do that, I'm sure it would have played out as an extremely beautiful scene. But Al was busy helping Sam try to complete the mission. Even if we were to believe that the aura doesn't have a corporeal form, and that all of Billie Jean's and the baby's bodies were still able to be reached by the obstetrician, it would still be extremely dangerous for both Billie Jean and the baby if the doctor was not actually able to see what is happening. Even more dangerous would be for Billie Jean to attempt to deliver the baby herself. 
Could an ultrasound, x-ray or MRI possibly be utilised to reveal the true body underneath Sam's aura? And would they be able to be used simultaneously while the obstetrician is delivering the baby? Who knows? But it is interesting that when Al first arrives, he tells Sam that when Billie Jean leapt to the future, she was in full labour, and that it took every doctor on Project Quantum Leap staff to stop it. So that suggests that somehow the doctors were able to examine and treat her. But just how did they do it? And did Al, being the only person able to see Billie Jean for herself, help? This would explain why it took him so long to communicate with Sam initially. Despite Al's great track record, however, Sam refuses to believe that he's correct, due to experiencing the mood swings, nausea, tiredness, cravings, and hot flushes that come with pregnancy, as well as later feeling the baby kicking and experiencing the full pain of labour. Realistically, there is no way that Sam could be pregnant. Sam doesn't have a womb, so the baby could not survive. So, where are these pregnancy symptoms coming from? It's implied in most episodes that Sam absorbs a little bit of the person he's replaced, and it really speaks volumes about Scott Bakula's acting talent, being able to play each part slightly differently to back this up. This process is known as psychosynergizing, in other words, mind merging. Although still not explicitly stated, eight and a half months heavily implies that mind merging could be happening, and that he has absorbed these pregnancy symptoms from Billie Jean herself. But there's a problem. The initial symptoms of mood swings, nausea, tiredness, cravings, and hot flushes all happen in the first trimester. But Billie Jean is full term. How could Sam be absorbing pregnancy symptoms from Billie Jean when she would already be over them? Again, I think Al hits the nail on the head. Through Sam's hypothesizing about the possibilities of leaping into a pregnant woman, he convinces himself that he is pregnant and like most fathers-to-be, suffers from a phantom pregnancy, and the symptoms are created through a psychosomatic effect. Lisa Simpson's teacher actually explains this very well. You see, class, my Lyme disease turned out to be psychosomatic. Does that mean you're crazy? No, that means she was faking it. No, actually, it was a little of both. Having said that, though, I would argue that Sam is psychosynergizing with Billie Jean once she actually does go into labour, for two reasons. First, a man could never imagine the level of pain that a woman goes through during labour, so I doubt that Sam would have a frame of reference to be able to subconsciously recreate it. And second, it's been shown many times during the series, such as in Lee Harvey Oswald and Revenge of the Evil Leaper, that people in an unhealthy mental state are more likely to have what Al calls the loose neurons that Sam could pick up. And when being in as traumatic an experience as childbirth, Billie Jean could easily send some of those loose neurons towards Sam. So, if we agree that Sam could not possibly be pregnant, as he does not have a womb, then we are presented with a real logical challenge towards the end of the episode. When Sam and Billie Jean are both in labour, Al is baffled when Ziggy tells him that the baby has disappeared from Billie Jean's womb. It's somewhat ambiguous as to what Al meant here. We don't know if he means that the baby had originally been inside Billie Jean and then leapt out, or else that everyone had assumed the baby was with her and then when they did check, they found her empty. If it was the first possibility 
Then when the baby leapt away from Millie Jean, just where did it end up? As we've already established, the baby could not ever be inside Sam. Sam does not have a womb. The baby would not survive. I lean towards the second explanation, that the baby was never inside Billie Jean while Billie Jean was in the waiting room. If we remember back to Genesis, Al explains that time passes between Sam's leaps. When he leapt from Tom Stratton to Tim Fox, a week passed in their time. This suggests that while Sam is mid-leap, he goes into a limbo state, where he can rest and recuperate. This is further backed up by the fact that when Sam is injured in a leap, when he leaps to the next scenario, he's fully healed. A perfect example is when Sam was beaten to a pulp at the end of Black on White on Fire, but after leaping to the Great Spontini, he was perfectly fine. So, as adamant as Sam was, Since it's obvious that the baby could not physically be inside him, and it wasn't inside Billie Jean when they checked, then one could infer that when Sam leapt in and Billie Jean leapt out, the baby leapt to the safety of Limbo, where it remained until Billie Jean returned so that she could give birth. The only thing that could be argued against this explanation is the fact that the obstetrician said that he could see the head crowning. How could this happen if the baby isn't inside Sam, or if the aura surrounding him isn't mirroring what's happening to the real Billie Jean in the future? I would theorise that as the aura is simply an illusion, that it's putting on that illusion so as not to arouse suspicion. This would require a lot of sophisticated thought behind the grand design, but it's the only explanation that makes sense. Sam was never giving birth while experiencing the labour pains. It was just the illusion of Billie Jean's physical aura making it look that way. Now that we have some of the technical issues sorted, or at least put on the table for debate, there are a couple of other things that deserve mention. First, this is probably the closest we've ever seen to Sam not being able to complete his mission, which was to ensure that Billie Jean would be able to keep her baby, as in the original history, it was a decision that Billie Jean always regretted. Sam tried many different options, trying to mend the relationship with Billie Jean's father, Bob, to try to get him to accept the decision to keep the baby and help her take care of it. When that failed, he asked for help from Dottie, as Billie Jean probably could stay on her feet with Dottie's employment and board. With Dottie's refusal, Sam tried desperately to get the baby's father, Willis, to take financial responsibility, but to no avail, since he didn't have any money and was due to leave town to go to college. All hope seemed lost by the time labour started. It was only by pure luck that Effie, having seen her own sister die during childbirth at just one year older than Billie Jean, that she was able to convince Bob that his daughter's life was in danger, just to get him to the hospital. It does make me wonder though, could Sam's idea of having the project contact Billie Jean in their time to ask what she thinks could be done, could work? Yes, time was against them, but if they did have the time. Could, say, Dr. Beeks conduct a faux survey via telephone and ask the older Billie Jean what other options could have been available at the time? This could have been a very interesting take on the series, something that I would like to see attempted if the franchise was ever rebooted. If there is anything negative to say about this episode, it's how it portrays adoption negatively. With so few options available to Billie Jean, the fact that she'd not finished her education had very little employment, was without a permanent place to live, 
did not have a support network, nor any means to support herself, let alone a baby, adoption did seem like the best option. Sam had to say the line to the woman who brought the adoption papers that he does believe in adoption, as we would not want to influence expectant parents to have their children be put into various states of poverty or neglect when there is another option. But it does make me wonder, if God or time or fate or whatever has left Sam there to prevent the baby from being put up for adoption, was this really for Billie Jean's benefit? Or was it for the babies? Was there something else going on in the original timeline when the baby was adopted, which GTFW did not want to play out? Was the baby abused by the adoptive parents or put in some other situation that a child should not have been put into? For this reason, I still couldn't say anything negative about the episode, as with how the series has played out so far, we know that GTFW only leaps Sam into the situations he is put into for a reason. It does seem like there is more to the story than just what is played out in the plot, and for being so thought-provoking, as horrible as some of those thoughts are, for giving us so much to think about and talk about 25 plus years later, this does make me rate eight and a half months as one of the best episodes that Quantum Leap ever did. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and it's time for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, where I tell you about all the vintage radios that appear in Quantum Leap. Well, here we are at eight and a half months, and as I told you earlier in the podcast, there are no radios in this episode, despite the fact that we hear one playing constantly in Dottie's shop. So we're once again digging into the archives. I bless the day I found you. I want to stay around you. And so I beg you. And we've arrived at Season 1, Episode 7, Kamikaze Kid. And this episode, coupled with this Everly Brothers tune, is the entire reason the Quantum Leap radio sightings exist. But more on that in a minute. Kamikaze Kid continues the first season tradition of Radiomania, featuring three radios, two of which appear in Cheryl's bedroom, in the same scene. The first is a 1956 Packard Bell 5R1, sitting on Cheryl's dresser. This is the second time we've seen this model radio on the show, but not this set. The first was in How the Test Was Won, where I remarked on the radio's unique deco dial, which makes it look like an old-time elevator floor indicator. The 5R1 seen in Tess is brown and gold. The one we glimpsed in Kamikaze Kid is white and gold. Now, the 5R1 was a popular kit radio that people could build at home, and it came in tons of colors. And since it came out in 1956... It's just fine being on Cheryl's dresser during Sam's leap date of 1961. The second radio in Cheryl's room is parked on her nightstand, and for the life of me, I can't figure out what kind it is. What I can tell you is that it's red, and that it's a portable model with a carrying strap. It looks about right for the late 50s, so I'm going to say no anachronism. Now, the third and final radio in Kamikaze Kid that's the one that started it all. I was sitting in my office with this episode on in the background, and I looked up when I heard the Everly Brothers singing Let It Be Me, 
It's one of my favorite songs. And what I saw was a nice close-up of a Philco radio, sitting under a shoeshine chair. As the shot pulled back to reveal Sam and Al, I could only focus on the radio. What model? What year? Did it belong in 1961? Thus, the insanity began, and I've been spotting radios on Quantum Leap ever since. And I'm happy to report that the Philco is not anachronistic. It's a 1952 Model 52 547 clock radio. It's a beautiful two-tone set with a cream cabinet and a red front. The dial is on the left, sitting flat on top of the radio. And you spin it with your thumb. And it sits right above the gold-trimmed clock, which has a turquoise face. The speaker grill is on the right, and it consists of 35 large holes, and yes, I counted, and they're also flanked in gold trim. It's such an interesting-looking radio that I'm not surprised the director started the scene with a close-up. And I am so glad he did. You might also be interested to know that it was about 10.15 a.m. when Cheryl left for the Peace Corps and Sam kissed Jill. Now, if you want to see the Philco 52547 and the other radios on this episode, not to mention the dozens of other radio sightings it spawned, you can do so on my website at theflipside.com. Just look for the Quantum Leap radio sightings link. Until next time, radio fans, this is your Quantum Leap radio guru, tuning out. So, guys, did we have any feedback? We got a couple uh, bits of feedback here. Yeah, we got some nice emails. So thank you, everybody, who sent us an email. The first one comes from Jessica Gimeno. I think that I'm saying that wrong. But anyway, Jessica, thanks for writing, Allison. Do you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, It's a little bit longer, so I think we're going to switch off a little bit on this one. But uh, I'll start it out. Okay. Hey, I love your podcast. I'm so happy I recently stumbled on it. As a speech and debate person, I competed in high school and college and a Northwestern alum. I have always felt a special connection to Emma and Billy. I have some thoughts on Runaway. First, Runaway deals with the theme of regrets and what if. What if Emma didn't get pregnant? Then, she would have went to Northwestern and done so many things with her degree. She was valedictorian. Also, Emma and Billy might have married each other. Emma's dreams were put on hold by pregnancy, Hank's by an injury. Hank would have been a more fulfilled person if he had played ball in college and maybe he'd be nicer too. Runaway deals with the lack of self-actualization for both Emma and Hank. Emma can go back to school, but Hank cannot play ball. If Hank could be satisfied with not finishing college, why can't Emma be satisfied too? Another reason Hank turns off their song, What'll I Do?, is that it's painful. The song played at their graduation prom back when the future was full of possibility. Hank was off to play ball at Florida State before an injury truncated his goal. Billy is the only one of the three adults who has pursued his bliss, and he has the freedom that comes with that. Billy has so many choices that he can't even decide where to teach next. But Hank and Emma are both stuck. And the letter continues. Second, Emma and Billy talk about doing speech team together in high school. They weren't just teammates, they were duo partners. There are a dozen speech team events, but only two events involve a partner. Billy has always been attracted to Emma, but she was dating Hank in high school. You noticed Emma's attraction to Billy. If Emma had not gotten pregnant, 
Hank slash Emma's relationship might have fizzled out after high school. Emma would have wound up with Billy or a guy who was a lot like Billy. Hank knows this and is threatened by him. Back in high school, they were probably on an even playing field. Hank was the popular jock. Billy was most likely class president or something like that. But now Billy has the upper hand and the difference is palpable during their, quote, pissing contest, as you aptly described it. All of this does not necessarily mean that Emma would have been happier if she didn't marry Hank. It is the road not taken after all. Very cool of this episode to have Sam slash Butchie reference Frost. I just had to share these thoughts. This episode seems simple, but it has so many layers to it. Thanks so much, Jessica Gimeno. And I have to say, Jessica, I never thought of Hank not being fulfilled with his high school dreams. Isn't that, that's a neat wrinkle that, did any of you guys pick up on that? No, I think we would have talked about that if we had done. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Thanks, Jessica. I think, yeah, this was a really smart analysis here. Like, uh, she picked up on a lot of things that we didn't touch on. I th- I think I sort of got shades of the, the Hank thing, but uh, I never really thought about the fact that Billy, out of the three of them, really was the one that was fulfilled. Yeah, that's that's cool. And what's also pretty interesting to me about this is, like, I never would even have thought about speech team and the dynamics of speech team and the fact that Mm. not only do they have like a pre-established relationship, Emma and Billy on speech team, but even their relationship on speech team was a special relationship in that world. So it's really neat to just have these points of view that I have no knowledge about. And I guess this is the one for the speech team enthusiasts out there like Jessica. She sounds so smart. Maybe that's because she was on speech team. (laughs) (laughs) We have another letter. Uh, You want to take this one, Matt? Sure. So this is uh, a letter from Aaron Head Moss. And Aaron says, hey, Quantum Leapers, just dropping a quick line to say hi to the new crew. While I'll miss Albie and Heather, as I've listened to them since the beginning, Chris and company is off to a good start. It helps that I've heard Chris on here and over on his 112263 podcast. Like I say, the podcast appears to be in good hands. As far as this episode, at first I couldn't remember the episode until you guys recapped it. Then it brought it back. While not a great episode, I thought it was enjoyable. As for the father hitting Sam, I don't think they dealt with that for two reasons. One, it wasn't the focus for the episode. Second, while not right, it seemed to be a a normal thing for that time, so the guys may not have thought much about it. Anyways, another great episode. Thanks guys, and gal. Can't wait to hear more. Well, thank you, Aaron. That is humbling, and I appreciate the vote of confidence. I have been involved with the podcast, but when Albie asked me if I wanted to maybe just pinch hit for a little while, it was a little daunting. I mean, I do have the 112263 podcast, but what's most fun is exploring the relationship with Matt and Allison, because none of us have worked together in this capacity before. We sort of knew each other slightly, maybe not at all, but it just seems to click, I think. Right, guys? Yeah, the first time that you and I spoke uh, ever was during that interview with Susan Dial. Like I was, I was late for that one, and I, I almost messed it up. And that was the first time that we ever spoke <laughs> was when we were setting up that interview with her. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> so, but it, but it always felt like it, like it felt like it just immediately just clicked into place. It didn't feel like, oh no, I got to kind of try and work this out because these two people I've never spoken to before. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And Matt, you know, talking yeah. to you during that um, the segment that we did uh, afterwards, when we just started discussing the lost ending, we just immediately were bouncing off of each other. And uh, you always have such great insights into stuff. And you're such an encyclopedia of knowledge. 
Oh, bless you. Yeah, and uh, as are you. And yeah, I mean, I'd I'd echo that as well. We've we've all, or I've I've spoken to both of you over email a couple of times over the last uh, last few years, but um, this really came out of nowhere, and I I thought it was worth a try. But I was surprised how easy that first episode came. Yeah, so we're having a good time. Uh, yeah. We seem to be clicking well off of each other, and we're going to keep exploring it for as long as Albie lets us. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who wrote in with your comments. Uh, if you would like to write in, tell us what you think about the podcast and this new dynamic, there are many ways that you can let us know. <laughs> you can reach us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast you can also follow us on twitter and instagram at quantum leap pod and if you want to go that extra mile you can always support us on patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast just remember if you do reach out to us we will likely use your response on an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast all right guys i know we've had a great time talking about eight and a half months but if possible i'm even more excited to be talking about our next episode. Oh, yes. It's Future Boy. Activate the time machine. Stand by the time accelerator. Uh, uh, uh standing. Bye-bye. Activate now. All right, guys, tell me you're not psyched to be talking about Future Boy. I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait either. It's a it's a personal favorite. Yeah, it's a super fun one. So I'm excited to watch it and talk about it. All right. And uh, until then, everybody, I've been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we will see you next time. Excelsior. Is that what Future Boy says? <laughs> <laughs> All right, true believers. <laughs> I knew it was something see you like in that. See in the future. <laughs> See you in the future, everyone. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Zoe Dean and Hayden McQueenie. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Juan Miro. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. Welcome to the Quantum... Good one! Right off the <laughs> bat! Great God stuff. damn it! I'm getting it out of the way. Uh, I'll get back to the groove, I promise. Okay. <laughs> But before we go any further, we have a new Patreon patron to announce. How's that? Woo! 
Give me a woo yay. Yeah. Give me a woo yay so I can put it in and then I'll I'll add. Excellent. Hey. <laughs> and scene. You guys are great. So Sorry, I'm I'm British. I don't whoop. <laughs> whoop whoop. Raise the oh, roof. Jo- jolly good. Jolly good. Cheers. Did I say nine and a half weeks? I might have. I think you said eight and a half months. Okay. I'm sure. You, did did I say nine and a half weeks? I'm worried now. So. No, it's been on my brain ever since uh, we've been watching. Oh, the don't you've got it into our brains now. <laughs> One of us is going to do this. Hey, so if you're listening at home, you should play along and take a shot every time one of us says nine and a half weeks. All right. So we're building that in for you. You're welcome. Effie, a prepubescent. I am so sorry, Albie. I can't pronounce that word. Edit. Ah. Uh, Bob says he refuses to spend his life... Seriously? The train? Now? Oh my gosh. <sighs> this is much too hard for me. Do-da, do-da. I keep getting interrupted. I can't read this. So the do-da day. <laughs> gosh. I'm sorry. Well, it's a surprise to see Sam. And he and Billie Jean... Sorry. Oh my gosh. I'm really having a rough time with this one today. I'm sorry, Albie. You're going to have to edit the crap out of this. Take three and a half. Sam explains that he is going to keep the baby and he needs Willis to find it to... Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. My brain is just not working today, Albie. I'm sorry. With one final push, Sam leaps. I did it! Woohoo! <laughs> you know what? There's a lot of shows that are centered toward guys. Like, I'll point to Supernatural, for instance, where there is a very posturing, testosterone heavy focus. And a lot of, like, you know, right, we're the tough guys and it's kind of gritty. And which doesn't mean that all shows geared toward guys are like that. But uh, when you contrast that with something like Quantum Leap, I mean, it's a completely different thing. So even though it has two lead characters who are male, uh, I don't feel like it's really that much of a guy-centric show. I'm sorry, Allison, I haven't heard a word you just said in the last three sentences, because all I can think of now is Dean, not Dean Stockwell, but Dean Winchester as the hologram going, Sammy, 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 you, you, have, you have to get, she has to keep her baby, Sammy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god no but everything you said is absolutely right and i just went down a supernatural cul-de-sac because i'm a huge oh, huge I, supernatural fan so. i could talk about supernatural forever but it's all complaining so it doesn't really go here <laughs> <laughs> i'd say complaining up until um uh, only after season five is what i would say for sure but yeah we could we could discuss that could be a whole new podcast too hmm. no i did a supernatural podcast and we quit <laughs> we, we quit because we got so tired of that stupid show man they're torturing someone again look they're keeping secrets in the bunker what is this hell in the basement <sighs> <laughs> what about oz but oz no for felicia day and oz <laughs> people keep telling me i should watch supernatural uh, am, am i <laughs> watch the first five seasons they're yes. really good but yeah they just they're amazing quit. they're amazing yeah. the first five seasons yeah i mean the five first seasons season... is obviously a good time to end the show <laughs> that's when they intended to quit uh, to to end the show but they kept getting renewed and now it's season 13 and it's uh, pretty dire it's it's uh ruby 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 anyway oh, yeah, uh, the scooby-doo crossover <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Which I have to I admit love is that though. It's the first episode I've watched in years. So same, it, same. It, it did it, you know. So it's nice to see Castiel still around. But uh, again, quantum leap. But what were we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would That's suggest cutting a lot of that out, honestly. <laughs> I just thought they lingered on it just a tad too long to get the joke across. But you know, that's a that's a nitpick. Uh, that's a nitpick. You're a nitpick how you talk. <laughs> Can't say nitpick. <laughs> oh, I know. I told you guys I'm nervous. Hey, Ivany. You're so <laughs> making me. Oh, my God. I should drink some beer before we get on mic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. I feel like I've been recording for what? Uh, what? 35 years. Well, now, what, what? No, no, no. All right. I feel we have been recording <laughs> for an hour and 30. I feel like we're going to get about 20 minutes of material out of this. Uh, <laughs> oh, after you cut out all this stuff about yeah. Junior and Supernatural, <laughs> it's just going to be us going like, what are we talking about? Eight and a half months. It was good. And <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, I feel like maybe they edited this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>